And now for something completely different. This is the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Let's do it. Welcome to the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. With it till three on this Friday as we kickstart the weekend with plenty to get to over the next few hours. Reaction from last night's NBA draft. Plus, we'll get to some winners and losers as well from last night. Some thoughts on Arch Manning and his commitment to Texas. The latest on Deshaun Watson and DeAndre Hopkins speaking out about his suspension. Major League Baseball power rankings coming up. Should the Braves boo, I should say Braves fans, boo Freddie Freeman this weekend? Get to that coming up. Plus, which divisions are the best in the NFL this year? What are the biggest storylines for the upcoming college football season? As we're about 70 days away. And a whole lot more throughout the afternoon. With you till 3, you can join the conversation throughout 843-721-9500 to give us a call. You can always text the show. 843-608-1734. Get to us on Twitter at Morrow Middays. On Facebook at ESPN Charleston. Via email, studio at kirkmanbroadcasting.com. Or online at charlestonsportsradio.com. Head over there and click on our show page where you can leave a comment for the show. You can find the latest versions of the show podcasted right there. Or take the Morrow Midday Show with you wherever you go. Just simply stream us online at charlestonsportsradio.com. With you till 3. As we start the weekend with plenty to do over the next few hours, Trent's on the steel wheels. Trent, what's going on? How are you? Luke, I'm doing phenomenal on this beautiful Friday here in the Low Country. Great night of the NBA draft last night. A couple surprises here and there. Some obviously phenomenal suits, some interesting suits, and we'll kind of talk about those during Trent's takes. Got to get my opinions on those and whatever else comes up. Luke, it's a beautiful Friday. Glad to be here with you, kind sir. Yeah, got a lot to get to. You know, so... As I always say, I love my industry. I love this job. I love what I do. I love the sports industry. There's a lot I also dislike about it, too. And I was curious today. I flipped on a couple of uh, radio shows this morning elsewhere, and all three that I checked in on opened the show with Kyrie Irving, and they're going to spend most of the day talking about Kyrie Irving. I watch Get Up. It's the only show I really watch, sports show I watch on TV. I watch it in the mornings as I get my day started. Same idea. Start of the show, talking about Kyrie Irving. Everyone's talking about Kyrie Irving. Nothing's going to happen for the next couple of days anyways. We can all sit here and wonder what's going to happen with Kyrie Irving. You can allow Kyrie to use you as a puppet to hold the Nets hostage. And everyone's going to talk about Kyrie Irving every day, all day long. And it's unbelievable. I can't stand it. I don't know why uh, uh, people fall in love with these storylines. I also don't know how you can even do a show where you talk about Kyrie Irving for all two hours. I would drive myself nuts. So today, 
We're not going to talk Kyrie Irving. We're going to open with the draft, which actually happened last night, and I think is a little more exciting and pertinent than Kyrie Irving's latest debacle. And we're going to touch on about 15 different things today because that's how I always like to do it. I can't sit here and talk about the same thing over and over again for three hours. I'll drive myself nuts, let alone probably you as well. So hopefully you appreciate it. But we're going to talk about about 15 different topics throughout the afternoon instead of sitting here twiddling our thumbs on Kyrie Irving for hours. And with that, let me start with the draft. Paolo Boncaro goes first overall. I thought he was the best player in the draft. It was a surprise in the sense that the media led you to think it was a surprise. We all thought Jabari Smith was going to go first overall. Boncaro goes first to the Magic. I thought it was the right move. I think he's the best player in the draft. I think he's the most ready to go. I think Boncaro could have the largest impact, at least of the top three, in the NBA this year. Holmgren's a project. I think Jabari Smith still needs to grow. But I think Paolo Boncaro can have success right away. Will he be an immediate star? Not necessarily, but he can have an impact this year. He's not going to be a guy that looks overmatched out there. That you think, maybe like a Chet Holmgren. All right, we kind of got to get him off the floor right now. We got to wait till he grows. That's not the case with Boncaro. Right, he's 6'10". He's athletic. He's long. He gets up and down the floor. Solid on defense. Right, Good enough. He can score it. Played at Duke. It's not like he's coming from a Gonzaga or a mid-major. Big fan of Bancaro. I thought he was the best player in this draft, and I think he's the safest pick as well. Is he going to be like a five-time All-Star, a Hall of Famer? I don't know. But I don't think he's going to be somebody who's quickly out of the league or he's the eighth man. He may not be the star of the Magic five years from now, but I think at minimum, right, he's still a starter for you that, that does a good job. Is he going to average 25 points a game? I think he could. I'm not going to guarantee it. I think his floor is very high. He's not going to bottom out, and it's not going to be an Anthony Bennett situation where three years from now he's out of the league. I think if nothing else, Boncaro will be at least a good sidekick. He'll be a good two or three on a team. Uh, Maybe like what Andrew Wiggins became, where Wiggins was looking like a bust when he was supposed to be the star, put him on a team where he doesn't have to be the star, and he shows how good he can be in the NBA. I think that's worst-case scenario for Boncaro. Eh, Maybe he's not the star, but he's a really good number two. I think he'll be fine. Holmgren, I think a little more of a project. Jabari Smith. Has a high ceiling, but I still think there's some room to grow. But Boncaro goes first. Holmgren, two. Jabari Smith, three. Keegan Murray, four. Jaden Ivey, five. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Here was Woj this morning on Get Up talking about Boncaro going first and how seemed to be a surprise, maybe because some people got taken. Boncaro is the best player in the draft. He goes number one. Here was Woj's reaction this morning. It was a lot of surprise. It was about 7.30, 7.25 when we started to get a sense that indeed the pick was going to be uh, Boncaro. And this was one of the great stealth pre-draft operations run by Jeff Weltman, John Hammond in Orlando. They had everybody convinced that Jabari Smith Jr. was going to be their pick at number one. Jabari, Jabari Smith Jr.'s camp believed they were going number one. Chet Holmgren and his camp, they believed they were at number two uh, to Oklahoma City, which is how that stood up. And of course, the Rockets went from believing they were going to take Bancaro to, uh, in that time frame, realizing that there was a really good chance that Jabari Smith Jr., the, the, the player that many thought was going to be number one overall, would make it to them at number three. That was Woj this morning. You know, if I'm being honest, I think it's a little damage control because Woj actually got it wrong. He was reporting that it was going to be Jabari Smith, even when the odds changed, even when Vegas knew something was up. Vegas made Boncaro the favorite. And still Woj said, no, Jabari Smith's going number one to Orlando. Paolo's going to go third to the Rockets. And then minutes before the draft, he switched his opinion and said, oh, actually, Boncaro is going to go to Orlando. Something seems off about all this, not even with the the whole Woj theory. But Orlando never brought in Boncaro for some sort of tryout or anything. And according to reports, Boncaro didn't really care to go to Orlando. So maybe that's why the Magic 
didn't even bother trying to do things with him pre-draft because they knew he wouldn't be interested. But as Woj said in that clip, right, the, the Magic did a great job keeping it under wraps. Why? They're the number one pick. It doesn't matter. When it comes to the NFL draft, we know months in advance who the teams are taking. It makes no sense for Orlando to try to keep this under wraps and not work out Boncaro and show no interest just to take him number one. So either Woj is trying to save himself by coming up with some Fugazi storyline of Orlando had, though, they did a great job of keeping it a secret. Why do they have to keep it a secret? They're picking first. No one can jump in front of them. You want to tell me because it's going to make things a little bit harder on the teams after them? Okay. Then Houston has 20 minutes to make their decision, and they realize, okay, Boncaro's up for it. All right, we'll go with Jabari Smith. There you go. Decision made. And Chet Holmgren's going too? All right, well, we like Jabari Smith next. We'll take him three. Makes no sense for Orlando to try to keep this such a secret. So something's off. Either the Magic uh, uh, were unable to get things done with Boncaro before the draft because he was uninterested, which wouldn't be a great sign, or maybe Woj is just trying to save himself because he was wrong the whole time. I don't know. But it seems odd that the team picking first overall would supposedly try to keep this whole thing a secret. Makes no sense. You're picking first. Who cares? No one can do anything about it. You could take whoever you want. You could have drafted Trent if you want, and no one's going to do anything about it. You don't need to keep it a secret. Um, with that said, the big surprise maybe was Boncaro going first overall. And then people were surprised Keegan Murray went fourth, Jaden Ivey went fifth. Ivey didn't want to go play in Sacramento, so he winds up in Detroit. Here's what I find interesting. When we look at the draft last night, we focused so much on the big three. Boncaro, Holmgren, Jabari Smith. All one and dones. Then you get to Keegan Murray, who's a little bit older. Jaden Ivey's a little bit older. They went four and five in the draft. If you go back and you look, last 15 years. Now, I excluded last year because it's too soon. But if you go back last 15 years and look at the lottery, which is the top 14 picks of these drafts, there have been 89 one and duns drafted in the lottery. 89 players who spent one year in college and then went to the NBA. Of those 89 in the last 15 years, 14 have been All-Stars. So less than, you know, 20%. Not a great rate. I'm not counting last year because it's too soon, but last year seven of the 14 players were one and done. None of them made an All-Star game as a rookie, which may be asking too much. But the percentage has gone down in recent years. It's gone even lower. Last five years, it's about 15% of one-and-dones taking in the lottery, top 14 players in the draft, actually become All-Stars. About 15%. Not great. The number one pick, 13 straight years, has been a one-and-done player. You have to go back to 2009 when Blake Griffin was the last guy to go number one who spent more than one year in college. We had six more last night in the lottery. Six out of the top 14 players last night were one-and-dones. This, of of course, uh, excludes international players. And the top three guys, again, last night were one and done. Boncaro, Holmgren, Jabari Smith. Then you get to Keegan Murray, Jaden Ivory, uh, Ivy, who's uh, a little more experienced. I wouldn't be surprised if we look back on this draft and maybe Murray and Ivy are the better players out of the top five. Holmgren's more of a project. Jabari Smith still needs to grow. I like Boncaro. He is 19, though. Keegan Murray's 22. Right? Jaden Ivy spent a couple years in the league, played in uh, March Madness, played in some big games, athletic guard, a little more mature. You know, the great thing about the Golden State Warriors, we talk about how they've built this team through the draft, and they did. But go back and look. Steph Curry spent three years in college. Clay Thompson spent three years. Draymond Green spent all four years at Michigan State. They're not built through one-and-dones. Not only did they use the draft, but they got guys who a little more experienced in college. We're not 19-year-olds coming in and having to be stars right away. They got more experienced players who were a little more advanced coming into the league and turned into great players. Go back a couple years ago. Zion Williamson went number one, the best player in that draft. John Morant spent two years in college. Zion was a one and done. Donovan Mitchell spent multiple years in college. So, too, did Kawhi Leonard, James Harden, Paul George, Damian Lillard, uh, Russell Westbrook, 
Chris Paul, some of the better players in the league still today. Anthony Bennett was a huge bust as a one-and-done player being drafted first overall. Right after him was Victor Aladipo, who spent three years at Indiana. He was the much better player. I was talking about this yesterday where in the NBA draft, you got to give it a couple years. It's like buying a car, especially nowadays. I know that's because of the chip shortage, right? Cars are being delivered to people's homes. You don't even get to see them at the lot. I don't know if the car industry has caught up. I know it was like that for a while. So you may buy a car. You got to wait till it gets delivered. Probably frustrating. You want that. You want to drive that car off the lot. They tell you, ah, sorry, we got to send it to you from the factory. Hopefully it gets to you in a month. In a month? I need a car. I just bought the car. I want the car now. You don't want to wait around. You hear about a new movie coming out, and then they tell you, yes, wait till summer of 2027. What? This movie sounds great. I don't want to wait five years to watch it. In the NFL, these guys have to wait three years after high school. They're more developed, and they come in, and they have immediate success. Quarterbacks, wide receivers, defensive backs, linemen, whoever it is, you plug them in, they start right away. They could be a pro bowler that first year. In the NBA, you got 19-year-olds that are one year removed from high school. Think about yourself, 12 months, less than 12 months from your, you know, from your high school career ending. Were you ready to go, even, not even physically or athletically, but even just uh, mentally? Like, were you mature enough to go play in the NBA and be given a million dollars and have a team put on your back? If you go back and you look, a lot of the one-and-dones don't really have a high hit rate in the last 15 years. And some of the best players in the league, yes, of course, LeBron came out of high school, right? Kobe came out of high school. Those are all-time greats. Some of the best players in the league right now spent multiple years in college. All the guys on the Warriors, John Morant, Donovan Mitchell, Kawhi, James Harden, right? Paul George, Dame, Russ, Chris Paul, Plenty of guys that needed a little more maturing, took advantage of an extra year, then went to the NBA, became really good players. So when I look at last night's draft, the top three players all one and done. And then you get to Keegan Murray, uh, number four, 22 years old, was the number one offensive-rated uh, player this past year in college basketball. Jaden Ivey, really good at number five. I think fits well with Detroit. Maybe those are actually the two best players out of the top five. More experience in college, a little bit older, more mature, even physically. Homegrown still a project. Jabari Smith, Boncaro have room to grow. Those other guys, they've been around. Maybe they'll be able to have a larger impact right away. Let me shift to this. Arch Manning uh, announced yesterday that he's going to Texas. Now, I said a couple weeks ago on the show, I would choose Georgia. Because I think for Georgia, uh, you have the defense on the other side of the football. They just won a national championship with Stetson Bennett, and there's no other sort of obstacle in the quarterback room. Alabama's always bringing quarterback talent. And for Texas... Not only do they have Quinn Ewers already there, Steve Sarkeesian's probably the worst of those three head coaches, and it's also it's still Texas. They're the worst program out of those three, and when you come into the SEC, it's going to be even harder to win than it would be at Alabama or Georgia. Texas was third on my list. I'd probably take Georgia over Alabama just because there would be no competition. They just won a national championship, did so with the defense. Right, Kirby Smart will have that defense ready for you. makes your job easier as a quarterback. And if they can win with Stetson Bennett, imagine what you could do there. I probably would pick Georgia. But I would like Georgia or Alabama more than Texas. Let's look at Arch Manning, his potential outline at Texas. He gets there next year. Maybe he redshirts. Quinn Ewers just redshirt, and it could work out that if Quinn Ewers is really good this year, well, after next season, he could go to the NFL. So it could time out perfectly for Texas. And eh, just redshirt Arch Manning for a year. Quinn Ewers plays next year, goes to the NFL. Then Arch takes over as a redshirt freshman in 2024. He plays in 2024. They're in the Big Ten. Uh, pardon me, Big 12. Then they go to the SEC in 2025 third year for arch manning and the final year potentially of his college career he could then jump to the nfl at that point 2025 first year in the sec this is my concern 
that if Arch Manning is as good as advertised, say he plays his freshman year, true freshman year, 2023, he plays two years at Texas, and we see like, oh, yeah, this guy is really good. And we're talking about him in the draft that will be coming up less than a year from then when they join the SEC. My concern is he's going in there with a Big 12 roster against the SEC. How has Oklahoma, with a lot of Heisman quarterbacks, looked against SEC teams in the playoffs in recent years? And this will be right before he gets ready to go to the NFL. We would be talking at this time about Arch Manning in the upcoming draft. Now, he could be like Trevor Lawrence, where Trevor Lawrence was the first overall pick from the moment he came out of high school, and he ended up being, three years later, the first overall pick. Nothing changed. But we've seen the stock of quarterbacks drop in their final year. Happened to Tua. We thought he was the number one quarterback. He was not. Justin Herbert, remember, sucked for the duck. He was not even the second quarterback taken. In hindsight, probably should have been. But Justin Herbert, his stock dropped at the end of his Oregon career. Even Justin Fields. We thought Justin Fields would be the guy. He was not the first quarterback taken. He was not the second quarterback taken. Even Deshaun Watson, right? Mitch Trubisky jumped up ahead of Deshaun Watson that final year. Trubisky's only year as a starter. People were concerned about Deshaun. He's, you know, he's turned the football over too much. And another Steve Sarkeesian quarterback, Matt Leiner, who was the guy. Then you lose to Vince Young that final year, and Leiner drops to, he was picked, I think, 11th, somewhere around there. Vince Young went ahead of him. We've seen quarterbacks that had great careers, but in that final season, their stock drops a little bit. It'd be a little bit of a concern for me for Arch Manning and his future. And I know this is a storyline for three years from now, but when we talk about Arch and that endgame, this is the endgame. Texas joining the SEC in 2025 and probably not being prepared. Here is Pete Thamel this morning on Get Up talking about if he thought he was answering a question of uh, if he thought, you know, this means Texas is back, that they're ready to compete with the big dogs now that Arch Manning will be eventually going there. They have so far to go that they are so beyond one recruit helping them get into that conversation. I mean, they need to get a bowl this year. Like, they, they went 5-7. and seven. They lost to Kansas at home. It, the best way to think about the state of this Texas program now in the moment that Arch Manning has committed is that they're essentially three touchdowns behind Arkansas, which is a middle-of-the-pack team in the SEC. They lost at Arkansas by essentially three touchdowns last year. So what Arch Manning does is gives them a building block for SEC competitiveness. He gives them a linchpin, a face of their recruiting, a magnet for other blue chips that can help them build and be competitive in the SEC. But to say Arch Manning, you know, they roll out of bed and can compete with Alabama and Georgia now is crazy. They have a long way to go. This is certainly a huge help, and you can't overstate what a big deal this is. But the, the, before we all yell, Texas is back. Let's, uh, let's wait a few years, stack a few recruiting classes, and really fill that roster with more talent. Now, look, they do have three more years to prepare. When you get an Arch Manning, if Quinn Ewers plays well this year, that helps. You're going to get better recruits. Sarkeesian's done a good job recruiting there. But as Thamel laid it out, right now, you're about three touchdowns behind Arkansas. Imagine what you will look like. In fact, we'll find out this season right, how they stack up against an Alabama. That would be my concern for Arch Manning, that the year he's getting ready to potentially go to the NFL, here they come into the SEC, and they'll be behind the eight ball against every team they go up against. Because there's a difference between recruiting Big 12 talent and SEC talent. Go back and look at the programs that have joined the SEC in the last 30 years. The Gamecocks and Arkansas joined the SEC in 1992. South Carolina had Steve Tannehill. And their first winning record was not until their ninth year in the SEC. Pocket quarterback. Arkansas had a pocket quarterback. They went from six wins, joined the SEC, won three games their first year. They did not have a winning season until their fourth year in the SEC. More recently, a decade ago, we had Missouri and Texas A&M. 
Both came into the SEC. They both came from the same conference. They both had experienced offensive head coaches. One team got better their first year in the SEC. The other got worse. Missouri went from eight wins to five. They went two and six their first year in the SEC. Texas A&M went from seven wins to then 11 in the SEC. They went six and two that first year in the conference. What was the difference? Johnny Manziel. Missouri had a pocket passer, just like Arkansas and USC 20 years earlier. Texas A&M had Johnny Manziel, who was their leading rusher that year, not only in yards but attempts. He ran it 16 times a game. Against Alabama, he ran it 18 times. Against Oklahoma that year, he ran it 17 times. He was running all over the place. Because a lot of times the offensive line isn't good enough. South Carolina came in as an independent into the SEC. They said, we're ready to compete. No, they, they weren't. And Steve Tannehill, pocket passer, he had negative rushing yards that year. That was quite an issue. Arkansas, pocket quarterback, negative rushing yards, couldn't escape. Quite an issue. They couldn't compete until their fourth year against the SEC. Missouri came in right away. Yeah, they took a big step back. Texas A&M somehow took a step forward. Why? Because they had the most, most athletic of those quarterbacks, Johnny Manziel. And once Manziel left, Texas A&M did not have another winning season in the SEC until they got Kellen Mond, athletic quarterback. Now, when it comes to Arch Manning, he is more Archie Manning than he is Peyton Manning. He is more athletic and mobile than Peyton or even Eli. But... And I don't know how much we can glean off the high school stats. He averages to run the football three times a game in high school. So it's not like he's running all over the field. Yes, he is mobile. He's athletic. He can keep some plays alive. I don't think he's a Johnny Manziel who led the team in rushing yards, had almost twice as many rushing yards as any running back. He was the star in the passing game and the running game. I don't think that's Arch Manning. And when Texas joins the SEC, I think they'll be at a disadvantage in the trenches, just like those other teams were. And the only team that could handle it well, Texas A&M, was because they had a quarterback that could just take off and run. He could get away from that pressure. He could make up for the deficiencies on the offensive line. I don't know if Arch will be able to do that three years from now. Get back to me in 2025. But it's my concern for Arch Manning that once they join the SEC, that's going to be the big year. That's the year that he could potentially come out of college. Maybe he would be the number one pick. And he's going to be joining the SEC right at that time at quite a disadvantage. And I don't know if he has the mobility of a Johnny Manziel to be able to make plays with his legs when he potentially has to run for his life against some of these pass rushes of the SEC a few years from now. When we come back, the latest on Deshaun Watson, plus DeAndre Hopkins spoke out for the first time about his suspension this year. We'll get to uh, some of the, the issues a couple of former Clemson Tigers are facing right now. The Morrow Midday Show, right here on ESPN Radio. Now back to the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Coming up, the latest on a couple of former... Clemson Tigers. DeAndre Hopkins speaks for the first time since his suspension in the NFL. And the latest on Deshaun Watson, because every day there always seems to be something new with this whole story. We'll get to that here on the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow on ESPN Radio. Um, first, let's touch on DeAndre Hopkins, who was suspended uh, by the NFL this past offseason, helped to miss the first six games of the upcoming season. Now, he uh, talked to the media this, this uh, past week, a couple days ago, for the first time since that suspension. 
Here's what Hopkins had to say. A couple of things stand out that are of interest. This was Hopkins' uh, response when asked about his PED suspension uh, the other day. Uh, I've been good. I've been good. Uh, recovering, healing. Unfortunately, you know, I got to uh, miss his games. Um, but, you know, it is what it is. But, uh, you know, the team will be ready, and uh, I'll be ready when, I, uh, you know, when I'm up. You know, we're, we're still, uh, you know, doing some, some research right now. Um, you know, so hopefully, you know, before the season starts, you know, maybe we can get the games down a little bit. But, no, nah, it wasn't on me. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a natural, uh, I'm pretty much a naturopathic kind of person, man. Uh, you know, and what it was, it was called Osterin, uh, and it was 0.1% of it found in my system, uh, which is, you know, uh, if you know what that is, you know, it's, it's contamination, not something directly taken. Uh, so, um, you know, I don't take any supplements. Uh, I've never taken supplements. Uh, I don't. I barely take vitamins. You know, so uh, for something like that to happen, to, uh, you know, to me, obviously, you know, I was shocked. But, you know, my team and I, we're still, you know, trying to, you know, figure out what's going on. Uh, I'm a competitor, so, you know, Anytime I'm not on the field, you know, for me, it's frustrating. Uh, but, it, you know, that's, that's, that's the NFL, next man up. So, uh, you know, I, I have no doubt in those guys, that, you know, to win those six games until, I, you know, I'm ready. Uh, yeah, I'll be ready by training. That was DeAndre Hopkins this week. Um, by the way, he did drop his appeal. He never did actually appeal. So, I don't know if that's an admission of guilt, but if you truly felt like you were innocent, wouldn't you want your chance to fight? for uh, that suspension to try to get it knocked down. He did not uh, appeal it this offseason, so he is going to get six games with the NFL. He's not fighting it. It kind of seems like if I did something that I didn't actually do and you accuse me of it and you're going to punish me, I think I would fight to try to clear my name or get some of those games back or paychecks as well. Maybe just me, but when I saw that DeAndre wasn't appealing, to me that's almost an admission of guilt. I'm waiting for the athlete that gets caught for something that just sits up there and owns it for once. And the only one that I can recall was Andy Pettit actually did a press conference and he apologized. And he said, yeah, I, I did it. I shouldn't have. And you know what? Nobody remembers that. When you talk about baseball players who got caught doing things, you'll mention Barry Bonds, McGuire, and this guy and that guy. I don't think anybody remembers that Andy Pettit got caught and suspended for steroids because he actually sat there and he owned it. He didn't make up some excuse like, I don't know how this got in my system. Like Gary Sheffield, right? Remember said it was uh, – Oh, it was a cream they were rubbing on my knee. I didn't know what was in it. Yeah, that's how the steroids wound up in your system. They were rubbing a cream on your knee, and oh, just look, look at that. Now he's all juiced up. It's in his blood. Right? We hear these ridiculous stories. Now, for DeAndre Hopkins, I don't know, Point oh one, whatever he said, Point one. Maybe that's the case. I don't know. We don't have that information. As he said, it's contamination. But the most interesting part is it's twofold. Number one, it's the same supplement or thing that a couple of Clemson players got caught with going back, what was that, three years ago now? Osterin. And, of course, DeAndre Hopkins, right, coming from Clemson. So that's an interesting coincidence. And so, too, is kind of the excuse where he said it's contamination, which we also heard at the time about the Clemson players. And people were saying, right, oh, the Clemson guy, oh, no, it must have been in the, the cereal that they had. Go to the store and you can see Osterin is, right, which I, I don't think is the case. I don't think it's in day-to-day things that you consume in your body. But it's the same substance and it's the same kind of excuse-making of, uh, just contamination. And maybe it is, but if it truly is, I would think that DeAndre Hopkins would want to fight it. If you look up Osterin, um, it's, uh, from what I see, it's all like pill form. So I think it's something that you actually do have to take. You have to ingest in order to get that in your system. Now, I'm not smart enough to know other ways of it getting into your body. But I do find it interesting that it's the same thing as his alma mater ran into a couple years ago. And it's kind of the same playbook of writing it off or playing it off. However, for Hopkins, not appealing the suspension. Maybe he doesn't think it's worth the battle, but I certainly would want to fight it if I truly thought I was innocent and didn't do anything wrong.
And I'm still waiting, like I said, for that guy to get up there and just own it. So, yep, I took something that I shouldn't have. My bad. I'll come back after the six games better than ever, and I'll, I'll show you that I don't need this stuff. Something along those lines. Right? Accept the responsibility if you're going to do something wrong. It happens a lot more in baseball, but the amount of excuses we get. Alex Rodriguez got busted twice, right? Like, never admitted to it. He sued Major League Baseball. Oh, yeah, that, that's, that's right. It was Major League Baseball. You're right. They screwed up. It wasn't you, Alex, that took something that you shouldn't have. I accept responsibility. Maybe by not appealing, DeAndre is doing that at least uh, in his actions, but not with the words of the media. Hey, DeAndre, uh, that was DeAndre Hopkins. Deshaun Watson, of course, is the other Clemson Tiger who we're waiting to see what is going to happen. We know about Hopkins. He's suspended for six games. He's not appealing it. That's it. He, we'll see you in October. Deshaun Watson, we have no idea what's going to happen. This was Amy Dash on um, CBS Sports Radio. She's a legal analyst. You'll hear her all over. She works for Fox. She works for CBS. You'll hear her all over the place. Here was Amy Dash, her opinion on a potential punishment for Deshaun Watson with the NFL. We're still waiting to see what the NFL is going to do. Here is uh, Amy Dash, who is a lawyer, her legal analysis, her two cents on what we could see for a punishment for Deshaun. It's going to have to be done on a case-by-case basis and then go to the minimum of six games and, and, you know, multiply that. Of course, it could be more than six games per person, depending on the seriousness of the allegation and whether there's enough evidence to support that it happened or not. But I think it's going to be minimum six times however many uh, the evidence supports. Amy Dash. So to clarify, she thinks it's going to be a case-by-case basis, six-game suspension, not overall, but per case. So do that math. Six games per case, 24 cases. That's 144 games. Now, I hear Amy Dash a lot. She's not somebody who's out of touch or some sort of hot take. She's really good at what she does. So when I heard this audio, I was shocked to think that anybody would think that Deshaun Watson would get a suspension of 144 games. Divide that by 17 games a year. That's eight and a half seasons. You might as well just kick him out of the league. I... I would put it, as I always say, nothing or very few things in life are 0% or 100% chance. This I would put at about a 0% chance that Deshaun is going to be suspended for eight and a half years. It's not going to happen. I thought it was a pretty outlandish thing for Amy to even suggest. But with that said, I do think she makes a fair point, even if it's not the point she's trying to make in the sense that what's the difference? Why, why do we look at one case and 24 cases the same? If another player had the same thing happen and it was only one incident, Would he get the same suspension as Deshaun Watson? Are we saying, hey, six games? Or even if Deshaun suspended for a year, right? If somebody else had a similar incident and it was four cases, we say, oh, yeah, four, that should be a year. Like, at what point does it all just blend together? There are 24, or at least were before all the settlements, right? 24 lawsuits and accusations and a couple of others who haven't quite come forward yet. But, you know, we've had 26 women that actually have spoken to lawyers and have spoken out. I do get the point that maybe Amy's trying to make in the sense that for those suggesting, like, yeah, six games, that's what it is, right? That's what Ezekiel Elliott got and everything. But that kind of means that it's the same between one incident and, in this case, you know, like 26. And it's just like, um, you know, if you were to do, if you were to commit multiple crimes, you would have multiple punishments. They don't necessarily bunch it all together when you go into court. right? They find if you were guilty on this count and this count and this count. Why, when it comes to this case, are we looking at 24 incidents as, a pen- as uh, essentially just one big thing? 
Dan Wetzel also had this article for uh, Yahoo Sports. And, um, you know, 20 of the 24 women have settled with Deshaun Watson. Four have not. One of them is Amy Solis, who, or Ashley Solis, pardon me, Ashley, who was the first woman to put a face and a name to the accusation. She was the first woman to come out publicly. She was, um, has also been probably the most outspoken of the accusers. She's really probably the only one that you may even know the name of. She's been in the forefront of all this. And she has not settled. She was the first one to really bring this up. And so maybe you thought at the time, like, right, money grab. Well, she hasn't settled yet. And in this article, it is interesting, the breakdown that Dan Wetzel uh, gives, that, as he says, it was uh, Solis who had an established professional massage therapy business. It was Solis who was contacted out of the blue by Deshaun Watson via Instagram. It was Solis who describes a creepy run-up to the meeting, alleging Watson inquired if she would be alone before sprawling out naked on the massage table with just a small hand towel. And I won't read the rest of the sentence. It is uh, Solis who uh, testified she ended the, the meeting abruptly and cried in front of Watson, which Watson acknowledged under oath, describing Solis as teary-eyed. Remember, he did send an apology text, although acknowledged uh, no wrongdoing. And then also, this was another um, text message from Deshaun to Solis that we know, that they have the evidence of. Deshaun texted her and said, I know you have a career and a reputation. And I know you would hate for someone to mess with yours, just like I don't want anyone messing with mine. Is that somebody on the defensive afraid that she's going to spread rumors about him, or is that somebody sending a threat to a massage therapist? I know you have a career and a reputation, and I know you would hate for someone to mess with yours, just like I don't want anyone messing with mine. It's always hard to get tone of a written message, so I don't know. Is he saying it like I kind of just said it with a threatening tone, or is he saying it like, a little more cheery, you know, like, don't be spreading any rumors about me. I didn't do anything wrong. But he did send a, a message of an apology. He sent that message as well that, I don't know, maybe you interpret it as a threat or not. And Ashley Solis, uh, I'm sure, has been offered the same amount of money as everyone else and has not settled yet because maybe her attorney, Tony Busby, believes she has the strongest case to get even more out of Deshaun. That could be the troubling part in all this, that while Deshaun has settled 20 of 24, it doesn't mean it's gone away. There are still other cases out there, and maybe this is the – like the linchpin, this is the big one. Ashley Solis, who was kind of the first one to start all of this and maybe has the most evidence, most damning evidence against Deshaun Watson. I was not aware of this text message prior to reading this story from Dan Wetzel yesterday. And to me, again, you never know tone from text, whether it's an email, a text message, whatever. You don't really know. You interpret it your own way. I interpret it as almost like some sort of threat. I interpret it as not looking great for Deshaun. I think it looks worse than it does good for Deshaun in this case. Maybe that's just me. But that's the one that the attorney, Tony Busby, said, that uh, she's, she's, you know, she's the big name in all this. She's the one that's kind of keeping this all together. Deshaun probably wishes she would settle, but I think she's looking for even more. Uh, she's not just going to take the money and be quiet. Um, she really uh, wants to make sure that something happened. And it goes back to what I said about we played that audio a couple weeks ago where Deshaun said, right, I've never, um, whatever, his term, whatever his words were, harassed, or offended a woman or anything, but that's that's uh, a two-way street. And for him to send a text message to Solis afterwards because she was crying must have been an acknowledgement that she was upset about something, even if it wasn't your intention, which is why I said at the time it's hard for somebody to sit up there and say, like, I've never upset a woman before. I've never offended a woman. Well, I mean, that's not really for you to decide. You may feel like you've never done anything that would offend or harass a woman, but she may have taken it differently. And in this case, she was crying, and he sent a text message to apologize. 
You must have been apologizing for something. But with all that said, in regards to Amy Dash's suggestion, I don't think that will be the outcome for Deshaun in the NFL. I don't think he's going to get an eight-and-a-half-year suspension. But we'll still wait and see. When we come back, it's been a few weeks. We'll get to our Major League Baseball power rankings now that we're almost midway through the season. The more Midday Show right here on ESPN Radio. Now back to the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Coming up, power rankings for Major League Baseball here on the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow on ESPN Radio. And I complained about this yesterday, but I think it's a great weekend of baseball. And this is a perfect opportunity. Like, I know the Stanley Cup Finals is going on tonight. It may wrap up tonight. The NBA, they're done with They just had their draft. Now that's why everyone's talking about Kyrie Irving today, right? Because that's all that's going on in the NBA. If I'm Major League Baseball, especially now, this feels like the first weekend with not a whole lot going on this summer, I would uh, take advantage and call this, like, uh, I don't know, come up with some clever name. Major League Baseball is just uh, some idea of taking over the weekend. Or the summer's here. Play that up. And because we got some interesting series. You have the Braves-Dodgers, of course. That's on your radar starting tonight. That should be interesting. Freddie Freeman's return to Atlanta. More on that in just a moment. You have Yankees-Astros, which was a wild game last night. That's a four-game series that will continue. You even have, and I know it's early, too early to be looking at the standings, but you have uh, the Red Sox and Cleveland, two teams that right now are battling for a wild card, but they have two of the five best records in the AL. Uh, you also even have, like, um, the, uh, what is it, Phillies, Padres, intriguing. Two teams with winning records in the playoff race. You got the Brewers and the Blue Jays, two playoff teams with the season ended right now. It's just a coincidence, but there happens to be this weekend where there's not a lot else going on. Like There's some good baseball series if you're into baseball. You wouldn't know because you don't hear a word from Major League Baseball. But I think it's a golden opportunity. Promote the heck out of it. There's nothing else going on. Stanley Cup's tonight, but in baseball, we've see, we see the numbers. They're still more popular than hockey. You're not competing with that audience. Promote your game. Pump it up. The summer is supposed to be long to baseball. Starting this weekend. Power rankings. We did this around um, Memorial Day. Because the, the, the idea was, right, you don't look at the standings until Memorial Day. So when we came back on the air after Memorial Day weekend, I gave you my rankings at the time. The only power rankings we had done up to, the, uh, to that point. So here's our second version of power rankings this year in Major League Baseball. Because some teams have really turned it on here in June. Number one with a bullet is the Yankees. There's no one even close right now. And it pains me to say as a Red Sox fan, but I have to admit it. The last thing I was holding on to was, yeah, but they haven't done great against teams with winning records. Which was true. But now they've played 10 straight games against teams with winning records. I said these two weeks are going to be a real test, and so far they've gone 8-2 and two against those teams. They're just beating everybody. They're on pace to set the record for most wins in a season. Aaron Judge is on pace to set a record for most homers for a Yankee ever. There's nothing more I could say. The Yankees are 16-6 and six in one-run games. They're 23-9 and nine now against teams with a winning record. 
they're number one in runs scored. They have allowed the fewest runs. They have the most comeback wins. They have the best record at home, the best record on the road. They're number one in everything. And if you follow the Yankees at all, it just seems like they're a team of destiny right now. These last two nights specifically. They were down 4-1 on the road against Tampa, came back to win. I think it was the eighth inning. They won 5-4. Last night, down 6-3 against the Astros, the second-best team in the AL. They score four runs in the bottom of the ninth. And it's Aaron Hicks who hits the tying home run. It was Jose Trevino the night before who gets the winning hit. It's Clay Holmes, who is their star closer now with a .3 earn run average. It's a bunch of guys that you've never heard of. And it's classic. This is what the Yankees would always do when they were winning World Series. They'd bring in everybody, and they'd throw on the pinstripes, and they would have career years. And as a Red Sox fan, it has always frustrated me to no end. That they'll grab somebody off the waiver wire. He comes in and clobbers 20 homers. I'm like, what the heck? Where has this guy been? It's like Chaz Palmateri would say in uh, the Bronx Tale, you know why the Yankees always win? Because everyone's distracted by their pinstripes. And it's those same pinstripes that, uh, you know, give the power to these guys when they put that uniform on, evidently. Right now, the Yankees are cruising. They're number one. I would say there's a huge gap right now between them and everybody else. Now, the great thing about baseball, we've seen a lot of wild-card teams win the World Series. We've seen the Dodgers with the best record not actually win. So it's such a long season that things could change by the time it gets to October. Uh, they just have to be playing their best baseball in October. But right now, the Yankees clearly are the best team in baseball. I don't think it's all that close. Number two, I would say the Mets are the second-best team in baseball, especially what they're doing without Scherzer and DeGrom. Wildly impressive. Number three, I would put the Dodgers. Now, Walker Buehler, I believe, may be out for the year or at least come back at the very end of the season. They're also missing their best reliever, and now Mookie Betts is injured for a while. So I'm curious to see how the Dodgers will see him up close and personal this weekend against the Braves, but I am curious to see how things go these next few weeks. They're, they're a little banged up right now. Number four, I put the Astros. So that makes them the second-best team in the AL. And number five, I would say the Padres. What the Padres are doing, they're hanging right with the, with the Dodgers. They've been even with the Dodgers all year. And they've been doing it without Fernando Tatis Jr. Now Machado got hurt this week, so that's a concern for the Padres. If Machado's out for a while because he was having like an MVP type of season, uh, that could hurt for uh, the Padres. But I put them at number five right now. Those are the five best teams in baseball. Yankees, Mets, Dodgers, Astros, Padres, in that order. The other categories, teams that are hot right now. Baseball is such a long season that um, sometimes you can ignore a bad April. The Braves right now are 18-3 and three in June. And I'd probably put them number six if I continued my top list of teams. The Braves may be the sixth best team in baseball right now. They're playing like one of the best teams in baseball, 18-3 and three in June. The Red Sox are 16-4 and four in the month of June. The Cleveland Guardians, 16-4 and four in the month of June. By the way, the Guardians have one of the five lowest payrolls in baseball. They're in first place right now. So they've been quite the surprise and pretty impressive this year. But those are the three best records this month behind the Yankees in baseball. The Braves, Red Sox, Guardians. Those are the three hottest teams over the past month along with the Yankees. And they're teams that are playing better and have taken over playoff spots right now. So they're getting hot. Maybe at the right time. We'll see if they can keep this up the rest of the season. But they're teams that, because of slow starts, you don't really think about them as the best teams in the league. They've been playing like it for the past month. And usually it's the June swoon, right, where teams fall apart. Usually the Red Sox have a June swoon. Well, the teams that are fading this June, the Rays, the Twins, and the Brewers are all under 500 in their last 30 games after hot starts. All three teams dealing with injuries, uh, but they're struggling right now. The Rays, the Twins, the Brewers. And the Rays have not won back-to-back -back games in over two weeks. And then the last category I'll give you, most disappointing. And that's still the White Sox, the Angels, Seattle, and the Phillies. The White Sox are still under 500. A lot of people thought they could potentially win the AL this year. 
The Angels, after that great start, we know they fired Joe Madden. They're still under 500. probably won't be competing in September. Seattle won more games than the Braves last year, and yet they're seven games under 500 and are in third place in a bad division. And the Phillies, they are over 500, but they still haven't been consistent enough. Right, the Phillies have high hopes. They fired their manager already this year. Uh, they're just at this point kind of treading water, just playing 500 baseball. They have a better roster than that. They should be more competitive in the NL. So those are my five top teams in baseball, plus the teams that are playing the best right now, the teams that are playing the worst, and the teams that are most disappointing. We get Braves-Dodgers this weekend. Should be really interesting. When we come back, do you boo Freddie Freeman tonight when he returns to Atlanta? The more Midday Show right here on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show. Hour one of the Morrow Midday Show at Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Freddie Freeman makes his big return to Atlanta tonight. Do you boo Freddie Freeman? Jeff Schultz, who covers Atlanta sports uh, for The Athletic, put out a poll and asked the same question. 64% of voters said that they'll cheer for Freeman. Only 15% said they will boo him, and then 21% said they'll boo Marcelo Zuna instead. Remember, Ozuna had that domestic uh, abuse case, and uh, I thought Major League Baseball went really soft on him. They preemptively or they uh, retroactively suspended him for the time he missed last year. They gave him a 20-game suspension. Oh, he missed 20 games last year? All right, you're good then. That'd be like if the NFL said, Deshaun's going to be suspended for a year. Oh, you didn't play all last year? Okay, you're good. You could go play week one. I thought that was pretty weak of the Major League Baseball. So I can understand if Braves fans have an issue with uh, Ozuna still being on the team after getting into an incident with his wife last year. But I'm actually kind of surprised. 64% said they'll cheer for Freeman. 15% said they'll boo him. That's probably the reason, right? You probably should cheer for him. I did not like, now I'm not a Braves fan, but I did not like how things went down this offseason. And I thought he was being a little greedy. You know, I thought both sides could have handled it better. Maybe it was more about Freddie's agent than it was Freddie himself. But I remember Tom Glavin left the Braves. Now, he did leave them to go to the Mets. And when he came back, Tom Glavin got booed. Now, the Mets are... A rival, but I would also argue in recent years the Dodgers have been more of a rival than Atlanta because of the playoff series than the Mets, who really haven't been much of a threat until this year. So even Tom Glavin, who spent 16 years with the Braves and was a Hall of Fame pitcher, he got booed in his return. Will Freeman get booed tonight? I think there'll be some boos, and I'll be honest, wouldn't fault you if you're a Braves fan who booed him. I thought Freeman was a little uh, too greedy this offseason. Should have finished his career in Atlanta. Hour two coming up next. WTMZ, 98.9 FM, WTMZ, 910 AM and 94.7 FM, W234CD, Dorchester Terrace, Brentwood, Charleston. This is the Morrow Midday Show. But wait, there's more. On ESPN Radio. Back, 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 back again. Shady back, back, back. Tell a friend, friend, friend. Guess who's back, guess who's back, guess who's back. 
Second hour of the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. If you ever miss anything from the show, catch it on demand. Just search ESPN Radio Charleston, however you listen to your podcast. And the podcasts are also available online at charlestonsportsradio.com. Click on our show page. You can find the podcast there. You can also leave a comment for the show there. You can get in touch with the show on Twitter at Morrow Middays. Text the show, 843-608-1734. Or you can join the conversation on the phones as well, 843-721-9500 to give us a call. On the text line, somebody did ask uh, what I thought of the Hornets draft last night. I like the Hornets pick of Mark Williams. That was the guy I said we didn't do any sort of mock draft for the NBA last night. But going back probably two weeks ago, I said Williams should be the guy that the Hornets would take, and I'm glad they got him. It took uh, another big guy out of Memphis at first, at 13th, and I thought, oh, boy, and then they flipped him, and they get Williams instead. I think it's a good pick. I think he fits a need. They certainly need a big guy. Jordan has he has a bad track record of trying to draft big guys. I think this is the best opportunity yet, and I think it's a good match for the Hornets. Now they just need a head coach. But I like uh, the Hornets and even the Hawks. The Hawks went and got uh, a Duke player as well, A.J. Griffin, and uh, you know he can shoot it, and I think that's, that's good as well to give a, another shooter there, a Trey Young, can play off of the, the pick-and-roll or pick-and-pop game with Trey. And as Trey, you know, penetrates or, you know, has always uh, got the ball in his hands and the defense focuses on him, it could open up options for Griffin. So I liked both teams at least the first round. Second round, who knows? Right? Who knows with these guys? But the first-round picks for both the Hawks and the Hornets, I like at least the logic. Again, who knows? They, both guys may be busts. But I like at least the thought process. For the Hawks, you know, take a chance on this guy, and um, I think he could work well in that offense, and he certainly he has room to grow. A little bit of a high-risk, um, high-reward kind of guy, I guess, for the Hawks. Um, but the Hornets, that's exactly who I wanted, the Hornets to draft, and uh, I like it. He'll be a good rim protector. He'll be a, a good athlete. He's somewhat like a Dwight Howard. I'm not telling you he's going to be as good as Dwight, but Dwight in the sense that, you know, he'll block some shots and then he'll have some impressive dunks. Won't have a lot of good, like, post moves. Don't expect him to pull a Tim Duncan on you. But if you toss him an alley-oop, if you leave him open on the baseline, on the defensive end, like, he'll have some highlights. He's athletic. He's the longest guy um, in the draft. You know, like, wingspan and everything. He's got the most length, and that's important now in the NBA. So uh he'll, he'll be fun to watch with ball and then you know, i don't know if they hire d and tony whoever they hire we'll see they got to get a coach in there uh but i like the move for the hornets uh last night and hawks as well we'll get back to the draft coming up about an hour from now get to some winners and losers as well hey today's the last opportunity for you for donor appreciation week with csl plasma you can always donate plasma no problem there but today's the final day of donor appreciation week so head over to csl plasma today they have two locations in North Charleston, both on Rivers Avenue. And uh, you get 100 bucks the first time you donate plasma. And then today wraps up Donor Appreciation Week. So it's the last day of uh, giveaways where they're giving away bonus cash. They're giving away uh, grills today. They're giving away a TV, tablets, all sorts of stuff, or at least the chance to be entered to win that stuff. Bonus cash for all military teachers and first responders as well. And if you mention that you heard about CSL Plasma on the radio, you'll get bonus cash for that as well. $100 the first time you donate plasma. You can earn up to $800 the first month that you're donating plasma, and it helps you you know, pay for that summer vacation, pay off a bill. Uh, you got a kid going to college, at least help get their books. College is so expensive these days. Whatever it may be, gas, inflation, it's all through the roof. 
Go get some uh, extra bucks with CSL Plasma, donating plasma. I've done it multiple times. Quick, uh, well, I shouldn't say quick. The first time it takes about two to three hours, but it's easy. Easy enough. It's like donating blood. CSL Plasma in North Charleston. Tell them that you heard about them here and uh, even get some bonus cash. Today's the final day of Donor Appreciation Week. Let me get into this. Somebody, A buddy of mine yesterday asked me who I thought right now in June would be the division winners in the NFL this year. Now, as we discussed in the show yesterday, I do think it's easier to predict uh, the bad teams more so than the good teams. Doesn't mean we're going to be right because there's always surprises. There's always one or two teams, a couple of teams that you think are going to be really bad, and every year somebody goes from worst to first. Probably will happen again this year. But I was trying to think of who I thought was going to win the division, and there are certain divisions that I struggled with. So let's power rank the divisions of the NFL. Worst divisions to the best divisions in the NFL this year. And we'll go in that order. I think that's the most uh, drama-filled, the most suspenseful. Number eight, I think the worst division in the NFL this year will be the NFC North. And I say that as a fan of a team in the NFC North. Last year, they had one team with a winning record, the Packers. And I think the Bears may be the worst team in football this year. And while I think the Lions are improved, they are still the Lions. They won only three games last year. So I don't think they'll be great. I think you have the Packers, and then the Vikings are a big question. I like to think they'll have a good year. However, you have a first-time head coach in Kevin O'Connell. You still have Kirk Cousins as the quarterback who has a ceiling to him. You have a defense that was lousy last year. I think the Vikings should be good. They should have at least a winning record. But last year, I thought they should have had a winning record, and they went 8-9. and nine. So you may, once again this year, have just one team with a winning record and may have the worst team in football. I think the NFC North may be the worst division in football. Number seven, therefore the second-worst division, I would say the NFC South. You have the Buccaneers, who will be Super Bowl hopefuls. I'm not sold on the Saints. Uh, Den- you know, Jameis Winston would sound great if Sean Payton was still there. Now you have Dennis Allen, defensive coach who was terrible when he was the head coach the first time with the Raiders. Alvin Kamara is supposed to be suspended. Who knows about Michael Thomas? The division's bad, so the Saints should be able to get some wins against the Falcons and the Panthers. But it's somewhat similar to the NFC North. The North may have one good team this year. We'll wait and see on the Vikings. The South may have one good team this year, the Buccaneers. We'll wait and see on the Saints. I think the Falcons will be really bad, and I think the Panthers will probably be a lot like the last couple years, like five to six wins. I think they'll have a losing season. So same idea as the NFC North. You potentially could only have one team with a winning record. Now, the NFC seems to be so weak that the Saints will probably win enough games to at least get over 500. But I'm not as high in the Saints as a lot of other people are thinking that, oh, yeah, just plug in Dennis Allen, plug in Jameis Winston for Drew Brees. They'll be good to go. Uh, you're a, you have to replace still that Hall of Fame quarterback and a really good coach in Sean Payton. You know, and as I mentioned, you got some tra- drama there still with Thomas. Ka- uh, Kamara should be suspended. So a lot of noise with the Saints. Number six, the AFC South. I think the Texans will be bad once again this year. And while I'm hopeful – the Jaguars will be better. There is a chance that Jacksonville, they just stink once again. They've picked number one the last two years. They've been incredibly, they've been historically bad. So, yes, they bring in Doug Peterson, and, yeah, Trevor Lawrence now will be a second-year guy. Look, maybe Trevor Lawrence just isn't the NFL quarterback we thought he'd be. I don't know. I'm not as high in the Titans. I think they won't be as good this year. They lost A.J. Brown. And the Colts, I think the Colts will be better this year than they were a year ago, but the Colts are always the off-season darling every year and then don't really match expectations. And they go from Carson Wentz to Matt Ryan. Is that a big upgrade when Matt Ryan's 38 years old? I don't know. So I'm high in the Colts, but I can also acknowledge that, yeah, maybe they'll just win eight games this year. 
They won nine last year. Are they going to be better than last year? I don't know. Is Matt Ryan really going to be better than Carson Wentz? So I put the AFC South at number six because a couple of those teams I'm not sure about. The Jaguars could go anywhere from, like, two wins this year to maybe seven. I don't know. The Titans could potentially win 12 games again, or maybe they finally take that step back and win nine. Right? The Colts maybe win the division with 10 games. I don't know. I put the AFC South number six. Number five, in terms of best divisions, I'll put the NFC East number five. Because the NFC East, you had two teams in the playoffs last year, and Washington was 7-10. and 10. They were almost 500. And that was with Taylor Heineke. I think the Giants will be improved. I think Washington will be improved. I think Philly will be, uh, be improved. I think the only team that will not be as good as last year will be Dallas. And also, I view this division as kind of wide open. We haven't had a repeat winner in this division in 20 years. I don't think the Cowboys are going to win the division. I don't know who is, though. I guess I would say the Eagles. They're the next most likely option. They made the playoffs last year. But I think if Carson Wentz plays well, Washington, they get uh, Chase Young back. They were 7-10 and last year without their best defensive player and with Taylor Heineke. So, you know, if the defense is a little bit better and um, if you upgrade that quarter, if Wentz is better than Heineke, maybe Washington could be an interesting team. I think that division is pretty wide open, the NFC East. The Giants, I expect, will be better than last year. So I put the NFC East at number five. Top four, best divisions in football. AFC East, number four. Bills, Patriots, Dolphins, Jets. The Bills are Super Bowl favorites. The Patriots were in the playoffs a year ago. And the Dolphins had one of the best offseasons. Now come down to Tua. Right, how good the Dolphins will actually be this year. But I think all three of those teams will be in the playoff race. The Patriots, Dolphins, Bills, they all potentially could be playoff teams. And the Jets, I think, will be better than last year, but I still don't think they'll be very good. So the AFC East could have three good teams. And their fourth-place team may be better than a couple of other fourth-place teams. The Jets could be better than the Bears, could be better than the Texans. So I put AFC East number four. NFC West, I put at number three. The NFC West on paper could be really good once again. They had three playoff teams a year ago. And the team that finished in last place last year was being led by Russell Wilson and Pete Carroll. All right, that was a good division in football last year. The two teams that were in the Super Bowl came from the two best divisions, the uh, NFC West and the um, AFC North. I put the NFC West at number three because the Rams, I think, will still be really good this year. But there's a little concern for me about a Super Bowl champ trying to repeat the next year. Could they take a slight step back? A lot of champions do. The 49ers, if they go to Trey Lance, I think that's a step back. And the Cardinals, I'm just not high on Kyler Murray. And the Seahawks, I think, will be really bad. So I think there's a little risk factor, right, a little unpredictability here. On paper, this division looks really good with three potential playoff teams once again. But I could also see all three teams being a little worse this year. With all that said, I still think the NFC West is the third-best division. Number two, I put the AFC North. Because if the worst team in the division is the Steelers, you're doing pretty well. The Steelers have not had a losing season in over 15 years. So if you're going to give me Deshaun Watson and Lamar Jackson and Joe Burrow, and then the Steelers are going to be last place, but maybe they still win like eight games, that's a really good division. And one that when I was trying to give my buddy some predictions yesterday, I think the Ravens will win that division. But if Deshaun does actually play a good part of this year, the Browns may be the most talented. And then you have the Bengals who were in the Super Bowl last year. And you have the Steelers who could screw everything up by winning a few games they shouldn't because they have a good defense and a great coach. The AFC North a really good division, number two. But number one is the AFC West. Their worst team this year probably is the Raiders, and the Raiders were in the playoffs last year. We did this on the show previously, but they have one of the best divisions in terms of quarterbacks, maybe the best four quarterbacks in a division ever. With Russ, Mahomes, those are two Hall of Famers. Herbert could be a Hall of Famer, and Derek Carr is a very good quarterback. 
the AFC West is the best division of football. Now, last year, as I just mentioned a moment ago, by the time we got to the Super Bowl, the two teams left standing came from the two best divisions. Meanwhile, the biggest disappointments in the playoffs last year, the Titans and the Packers, came from probably the two worst divisions in the conference. And I made this case at the time that I think there's something to be said about being tested like that. And it's almost like Gonzaga runs through their lousy conference. They get to the tournament. And while they've gotten further in recent years, still they beat up on a lot of bad seeds. And then you get to the Final Four, you play a good team, and that's where they lose. They really hadn't been tested. That was always our concern. Alabama football, even though they played in the SEC, right, we'd always say, like, yeah, but are they really been? they've never had to play from behind in the second half. UConn women for all those years, they really wouldn't get tested until potentially the Final Four. Are they ready for that test? So last year, you know, I find it interesting that the two teams that were the biggest disappointments, the Titans at home, the Packers at home, extra week to prepare, lost to uh, two underdogs in which they were like a touchdown favorite. They lost the game. They did not play. Their offenses were bad. They came from lousy divisions. They had a bit of a cakewalk into the playoffs, didn't have to play a meaningful game at the end of the year. Meanwhile, the Rams and the Bengals made it to the Super Bowl. The Bengals had to grind just to get into the playoffs. Right? The Rams played in the toughest division in football and uh, w- you know won it to get into the playoffs. Came down to week 17 for the Rams, and they were the last one standing. So this year, as I told you, I think the AFC West is the best division in football, and the best division in the NFC, I think, is the NFC West, the two Wests. So if that kind of holds, maybe we get a Super Bowl team out of the, the, the two Wests, right? The Rams, maybe the Niners break through this year. Could the Cardinals take a step forward? And then the AFC West, I mean, I don't know. Pick your, pick your fighter. The Chargers, the Chiefs, the Broncos now at Russell Wilson are all contenders. Worst divisions, like I said, NFC North and the AFC South, I think, are the two worst divisions in their conference. So, again, going off of my theory from last year, that would be bad news again for the Packers and the Titans, the two teams from a year ago that also disappointed. I think they're still in the worst divisions of their conferences. And I think there's something to be said about going through those tests of the regular season that when you get to the playoffs, right, you're ready to go. You can handle it. And the teams that go through that cakewalk either are a little overrated or just are not ready for that big moment. But that's how I would power rank the divisions in football this year. You know, there's some really interesting divisions. Like, I think the NFC North could be pretty weak. The NFC South can be pretty weak. The AFC South can be pretty weak. But after that, the other five were all intriguing. The NFC East, I think, is open. The AFC East could have three good teams that we'll see about the uh, Dolphins and the Patriots. And then the NFC West, the AFC North, and the AFC West are all really good divisions on paper. We'll see how things play out once we actually reach the NFL season in September. When we come back, um, I've had this audio in the system that we have to get to about um, Adam Sandler. We'll finally get to it today. But it's an uh, interesting sound clip about um, – a movie that we reviewed a week ago. You know, we were just talking about the draft that went on last night, and Anthony Edwards is a big star now after being the number one pick in the draft. Well, Anthony Edwards didn't really like something about the making of that movie Hustle that we reviewed on the show last week. We'll get to that when we come back. It's the more Midday Show right here on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show.
It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Hey, if you're looking for something to watch this weekend because the sports this time of year are a little lighter, we're here to help. Although I don't know if these things actually, what we're going to talk about isn't really but things to watch. But I'll tell you this. I finished Severance on Apple TV. Ooh, yeah. How, did, how, did, how was it? What an ending. Okay. I'm not going to spoil anything, but yes. that was. So I'll say this. It, it took, it's a nine-episode first season. Okay. It took probably until about episode six to really pull me in. Okay, it's, okay. It's a slow burn, mm. especially the first, I watched the first episode. I think I said it on the show at the time. I did not come back to episode two for like, a, I thought, eh, it's not really a show for me. I yeah, thought. you mentioned it one time, yeah. and then you didn't mention it at all until right now, actually. Yeah, because I didn't go back to watch, start watching, you know, pick up at episode two, like, until another week later. Right. Which is, you know, a long time for me when it comes to binging a show, unless it's Parks and Rec. <laughs> so so then I was going through it, and then, I, you know, I was committed. I know you asked me this. It was a good question about, you know, how many episodes do you give it? And I'll be honest. Like, if Severance, if the show ended after four episodes, just say they got canceled, mm-hmm. I, like, wouldn't really be disappointed. Like, oh, okay, whatever. It's okay. done with. But now, like, if you told me uh, they're not going to do a season two, like, I'd be really – the way they ended season one, it was such a great ending that I cannot wait for season two. Oh. So it, it takes a while, at least for me. It took me a while to, to pull me in. So my uh, – Advice would be, if you're going to watch Severance, be patient. The first half of the season, and I know that's a lot. It's five, like five episodes, and they're like 45 minutes. You, you're going to be sitting there thinking, like, yeah, this isn't really that great. I, you know. But the last, the last episode and a half, which is almost an hour and a half, was more exhilarating than any movie I've seen in years. Whoa. I'll say that. Whoa. Yep. You're a movie buff, too, folks. Oh, yeah. So take this literally, okay? And my favorite movies are suspense and horrors that are supposed to have you like on the edge of your seat. I'm telling Severance, the last episode, and I don't want to hype it up too much, but the last episode and a half was incredible television. And there are certain shows, and ben, you know why? Because Ben Stiller was the director. <laughs> he did a phenomenal job. The way they did, oh, it's so good. Ben Stiller knocked it out of the park. Severance, oh, of course he did. Uh, I mean, what, do we, what, what else do we expect that's from right. Mr. Stiller? He's the best. So, anyways, I'm not going to spoil anything, and I don't want to hype it up too much, but the ending was phenomenal. Excellent television. How many, uh, um, the length of each episode, what are we looking at? So, it's about about 45 minutes, I think. Oh, that's not bad at all. No, not bad. They're listed as like 50 minutes, but it always starts with a recap, which it allows you to skip. You skip the, the opening credits, the ending credits. So, all told, like... You know, some of the episodes, I think, were more like uh, 38, 40 minutes. Oh, I can do that. That's easy. Yeah, Yeah, so it wasn't bad. I started, once it got really good, yeah, I started blowing through those last couple episodes because it's pretty quick. So, yeah, there's a couple of shows that, um, like The Night Of was an HBO show a few years ago, that the first episode was tremendous. Mm. And then the rest of the series wasn't quite as good. And I thought, man, you should have just taken that first episode because there's like an hour show. Expand, just make it a movie. It didn't need to be a series. The same thing with The Outsider, which is based off of Stephen King. HBO came out with that with Jason Bateman um, like two or three years ago. Same idea. First episode and a half, incredible television. Then the rest of the series is like, oh, what a letdown. So my point being, um, Severance was kind of the opposite, where it ended with like, wow, that should have just been a movie the last two episodes. I don't know if you needed to drag it out the first few episodes of the series to build everything up, but, yeah, it's, a, it's a incredible, uh, I thought, incredible uh, ending to the show. Hats off to Ben Stiller, and I look forward to season two. It's got Adam Scott. I love John Turturro. Oh, yeah. Uh, he's in it. He plays a great role. It's got a really good cast. Patricia Arquette, uh, it's got a good cast. And, yeah, pretty easy episodes to get through, and I'm looking forward to uh, season two.
Uh, this could also, folks, be a pretty big weekend for Peaky Blinders if you want to oh. tune in and start it. Now, I will say, Luke, similar to the show you were talking about previously, uh, Peaky Blinders and uh, Anderson, the intern, can attest to this. Season uh, season six, episode one, final season, banger. Starts off incredibly hot. Uh, episodes two through four, little slow. Little uh-huh. slow. You got to get through them. They're hour-long episodes. Get through them. Mm. Episodes five and six to end the series absolutely phenomenal so it's kind of what you were saying with hey sometimes you start off hot you go a little slow a little slow a little slow and then boom you're right back into it well see i yeah i'd rather have that build up which i think is what severance did right it built to the to the climax the other examples i gave you uh the outsider and the night of which were the first ones that came to mind were the opposite they set the bar so high that the rest of the season couldn't live up with it so i prefer that where you you build up to the to the big finish as opposed to the start off big, and then it's like, all right, it's kind of downhill from here. But there are some shows that aren't even that long. Like, think back to the old, at least sitcoms. They used to do, like, 25 episodes. Now, these are all, they use that term miniseries. A lot of these are, like, a miniseries just with multiple seasons. They do, like, eight episodes. But even some of these shows, kind of like The Outsider, which if you've seen it, you may know what I'm talking about. Some of them still feel like they go on a little too long. Mm. Which is why the middle of these seasons, like, you know, drag on. It starts off great, and then it's like, all right, it feels like almost they're filling the material just, just to get through eight episodes. Uh, Severance, I think it's necessary because they're building the storyline and everything. Sure. But, but I suggest it. And then I happened to start another show, uh, The After Party, on Ooh. Apple TV. Okay. Tell you what, Apple TV, Severance was my first uh, venture into Apple TV. Mm-hmm. They look like I, they got some good stuff on there. And so I watched... Um, the After Party, and I've only watched the first two episodes. It's like an eight-episode season, and it's more of like a dark comedy, and it's pretty good. Dave Franco's in it, Ooh. and um, Ben Schwartz, who I love. Oh, love Ben Schwartz. Tiffany Haddish. I'm trying to remember. It's got a good cast. It's an all-star cast. Yeah, Hold this on. is those, what I mean. Those three names. I mean, Tiffany Haddish, as far as like comedians in general, men and women, she is you know probably a top 10, top 15 yeah. as far as movies and uh, television goes. Now, stand-up, different story. I'm not a huge fan of her stand-up, but her comedy films and TV shows oh, yeah. are incredible. Yeah, she's a star. So it's got a good cast. And in this case, the first episode was a little long, but then I watched the second episode last night, and I already looked ahead to the episode three. It's like uh, 30 minutes. Wow. Minutes. So you, and it's eight episodes, so I'll be honest with you. I'm probably going to – I stay up late. I'm probably going <laughs> to finish it this weekend. After uh, when I get home or there's nothing on TV, I'll – please. 30-minute episodes, I'll blow through those things. No problem. Ted Lasso? That's also on my list. Okay. Well, that's a bigger commitment, right, because it's multi-season? Yeah, it's, I believe three seasons uh, right now, but the episodes, Luke, are quick, and you, okay. you can get through them. But I will say the only thing about Ted Lasso, it's, it's obviously a sports show, yes. and so it's very good. Jason Sudeikis does a phenomenal – the whole cast is absolutely phenomenal, but Sudeikis does a phenomenal job as Ted Lasso. Relatively predictable. When you uh, when you get into the show, like episodes second and third episode of the first season, and granted, me and my family over Christmas vacation, we watched it all together. Like yeah. We absolutely loved it. So it's a very good show, but it's kind of predictable. You can kind of pick out the things that are probably going to happen. Oh, this mm-hmm. person's going to get with them, and then uh, that, yeah, yeah. he might be traded, things of that nature. Right. So I do have to watch it because I've heard – Nothing but good things. So many awards. Like, they've won, like, every, you know, sitcom award in the last, like, three years. And I love Stakus. I'll watch anything yeah. he's in. He'll get me to the box office or TV screen. Where are you on Ozark? Ozark, uh, I mean, I think, uh, where am I? I'm still on season four. Yeah, I haven't wrapped up just because Peaky kind of took, mm-hmm. you, you know, it took over for Ozark. So I haven't wrapped up Ozark just yet. But I tell you what, season four, I mean, 
It's incredible. Yes. It's incredible. Uh, J- Jason Bateman, I listen to him on Smartless all the time. Yeah. Uh, the podcast that he does with Sean Hayes and Will Arnett, he's the best. Uh, I mean, not only is he one of the best actors we have right now, he directed and you know produced that entire show. So like his creative mind in that show, and it's obviously Netflix is ranked as like a top five show they've ever put out. So he did a phenomenal job. Yeah, and I to bring up The Outsider again, which um, – you know, was popular for HBO a couple years ago. He's only involved because he was doing that on the side with Ozark. So he was only involved in like, the first two episodes of The Outsider, but he directed them. Same idea. Like I said, the first episode of Outsider is incredible. Mm-hmm. And it's Jason Bateman acting and directing in it. And then the, once Bateman left the project, the rest of the series goes down. So, yeah, that, <laughs> that, that dude is – he's talented. And it's interesting because he was a child star, and then he had some drug issues, and he disappeared, and then he made a small comeback. He had a bunch of bit roles 20 years ago, and Arrested Development was huge, and that's a great show. And now – He's the biggest star, and it's not just comedies. He's doing Ozark, and he's doing The Outsider of Reference again, and these other projects where he's directing and serious roles. And, yeah, I love Bateman. I can't wait for a Bateman-directed and, like, a full film, just like mm-hmm. a two-and-a-half-hour movie. I don't know what it would be of, but him maybe get – it could be a comedy with Arnett and Sean Hayes and all those guys. You get them together to do a project – Oh, my, we're looking at a blockbuster right there. That's what I've said about Ozark, that I would love a spinoff of just Marty Bird, and it could just be Marty Bird just oh, living his life. That'd be phenomenal. I don't care. He could be working as just, you know, working at a regular 9-to-5 job. I'll watch the show. I love that character. I love Jason Bateman. I'll just watch a series of Marty Bird running errands. <laughs> I don't care. Like going to the grocery store and, you know. The interactions he has with people, yeah, it's I the just funniest it. thing. He's yeah. so nonchalant, like and he, right to the point every single yeah. time. He's hilarious. Love that character. Uh, I'll, I'll just watch a series of just him. Yeah, no doubt. Just doing random things, going to work, dealing with his co- Like I don't care. Put Marty Bird wherever. I'm, I'll tune in. What I meant to get to, though, in this segment, a um, couple of different things. Number one, they announced that Joker 2 is going to be a musical. Yeah, saw that. Not happy about it. <laughs> Not happy about it. Lady Gaga's in it, so I'm sure it's going to be good music. There's no doubt because uh, Star is Born was phenomenal with uh, Bradley Cooper. But what are we doing? I know that I know that the, in the movie, you saw the, the Joker with Joaquin Phoenix, yes. right? Yep. So he's a comedian, right? He's a performer and things of that nature. It kind of starts the whole Joker uh, facade, if you will. But, yeah, I don't like them turning this into a musical. I don't understand it. It sounds – I mean, I'm sure it'll, they'll do a good job with it. It's got a good cast or at least the actors that are attached. Todd Phillips, that's Todd the director. Phillips, yep. he, he hits it out of the park every time. But, man, the idea. I thought it was a parody. I thought it was like, is, is this The Onion? Joker 2 is going to be a <laughs> musical? Seems ridiculous. And I don't like musicals, so I'm probably not going to watch it. So what's going on? We're turning Winnie the Pooh into a murderer now, and we're turning the Joker into, like, a singer. He's going to be skipping along the sidewalk, you know, humming, humming tunes. We've run out of ideas. Yeah, <laughs> that's what's so. happened. Speaking of which, uh, I thought this was also a joke. But... Jordan Peele, who I really enjoy, he mm-hmm. does a bunch of horror films now, right? Started in comedy. I love his uh, movies. They won a bidding war to acquire a script for a movie called Goat. It's supposed to be a psychological horror film, and it's about a rookie quarterback who goes to train with a retiring football star who holds a dark secret to his success. Oh, boy. I like Jordan Peele. Jordan. This is supposed to be some sort of quasi-football movie. It sounds horrendous. Yeah, what are we doing? Jordan, you've had a couple bangers. I mean, the last three or four he's put out have been absolutely – I'm not a horror film guy, but I've watched everything that he's put out because he's so talented yeah. at directing. And uh, not – yeah, this, is, this isn't it. This is. So essentially, it's called GOAT, right? It's a retiring quarterback. You picture Tom Brady. I'm sure it's the idea is, is born out of Tom Brady. And a rookie quarterback comes in. They just drafted Kyle Trask. 
like the premise would be Kyle Trask coming into Tampa to learn from Brady, and he finds out that Brady like sold his soul, and that's why he's so good. <laughs> Sounds like a terrible movie. I'll probably still watch it nonetheless. And a couple last things. I've had this audio in the system all week long. So if nothing else, just for myself, we gotta clear we gotta clear this out. We gotta finally get to it. Even though you ha- you with the listener driver had no idea that we've been meaning to get to this all week. But we reviewed on the show last week the movie Hustle, the new basketball film with Adam Sandler. This was from an interview. It's a quick clip, but it's uh, Adam Sandler, and it's the star of the movie, um, talking about uh, sharing a funny anecdote about Anthony Edwards, who plays essentially the villain, one of the villains of the movie. Anthony Edwards didn't want to be punked in the film. He didn't want to get dunked on. Here was Adam Sandler uh, telling the story in an interview uh, last week. Wancho's character, Bo, has to uh, block Anthony Edwards' dunk, right? And Anthony was just like, oh, come on, man. I can't let that happen. Anthony tried to dunk on me so hard. Like, he almost bring the ball, the ball bounce around. I told Ant, man, I got to blow you. He said, there is no way I let you blow me. Yeah, so that's what it was. It was getting uh, uh, bl- blocked at the rim, not getting dunked on, but instead having his dunk get blocked. And Anthony Edwards didn't want to swallow his pride or his ego and let this guy stuff him at the rim in the movie. And thinking back, I don't think there was a scene like that. Right? No, 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 I don't think so. Yeah, uh, Anthony Edwards won. Yeah, he had uh, he had creative, uh, you know, allegiance yeah. to that scene. He was trying to dunk so hard that he was making it hard for them to <laughs> even block the shot. I do kind of like that from Anthony Edwards. But if you're going re- to be in a film, huh, you got to review the script first and see, uh, you know, how it's going to make you look, like any other actor or actress. He did not want to get punked out there by a guy he's in the real world better than. And the last thing, while we're on the subject of entertainment, did you see this story about Miles Teller from the making of, uh, uh, what's the movie? Top Gun? Yeah, Top Gun. <laughs> no, I did not. I mean, I've heard a couple of things about, uh, you know, but uh, no, I haven't heard this specific story. He told the story of he, he wasn't feeling well on set one day. He was sitting in, like, uh, the plane in the jet. He said, I was really hot. I started itching like crazy. So I got out of the jet, and I'm covered in hives from head to toe. So he was taken to a doctor. He did a blood analysis uh, test. He said he went home, took an oatmeal bath to reduce the hives. Jeez. The next day, Miles Teller gets the results back from the blood test. I don't know how this happens. I don't know if this is even factual, but Miles Teller said his blood work came back. He had flame retardant, pesticides, and jet fuel in his blood. What? Is what Miles Teller claims, why he wasn't feeling well. Wow, Tom Cruise, way to keep your uh, staff safe. Jeez. That's right. So he gets to set the next day, and uh, Tom comes up to him and asks him, how did it go? What did they find? And Teller said, well, Tom, it turns out I have jet fuel in my blood. And as Miles Teller said, without even skipping a beat, Tom just said, yeah, I was born with it, kid. <laughs> and walked away. Talk about phony. I mean, <laughs> come on now. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to, you know, harp on TC, but come on, TC. What are we doing, pal? And that is how you lead the most powerful cult in the country. <laughs> Jet fuel in the blood. Tom Cruise. Yeah, what a hokey line. I don't know how that's even possible or how you can even, like, live with something like that. I guess for people that maybe fly those flight fighter jets and everything, maybe that's a common thing, but seems pretty dangerous to have jet fuel in your bloodstream. But what do I know? Apparently, Tom Cruise has been doing it his whole life. Uh, when we come back, we'll get to Trent's takes. More Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show. Stranger in the black sedan, I want your heart. 
It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. We'll get back to the uh, NBA draft coming up, plus the best storylines of the upcoming college football season. A power move or a crappy move by Shane Beamer and the Gamecocks. We'll get to that coming up as well. Plenty more to do throughout the afternoon. But we do it around this time each and every day. We find out what's on the mind of the producer. It's time now for Trent's Takes. What's on the mind of the Morrow Midday Show producer? Draft Luke Morrow. That's Panthers. right. It's time for Trent's Takes. The radio cowboy will be coming, and he's coming soon, folks. Luke, quick side note. Ben Schwartz, arguably the best character in uh, Parks and Recreation. There's no doubt. John Ralphio, I mean, absolutely incredible character. Hilarious, especially when they bring the sister in, and they're doing it, and then the dad. It's so absolutely funny. Ben Schwartz, one of my favorite uh, comedians out there, especially, I don't know if you saw his uh, improv comedy special that he did on netflix it was okay but i did like seeing him in that space up on stage instead of just on the tv screen playing yeah. the character yeah a couple of my buddies loved that and they were raving about it and i watched it eh, it really wasn't for me it but i fun. do love ben schwartz yeah he kind of plays the same character in everything <laughs> he does and yet it always works yeah. he's the best part of this new show i'm watching he makes me laugh every time he's on screen it's the same role he's always playing and but he does it so well that he, he gets me every time did you see uh space force by chance yes. on netflix yep. yeah he, he was great yeah he did a great job in that uh diana silvers by the way probably uh one of my biggest celebrity crushes Ooh. absolutely loved her in space force but luke yesterday did we have arguably the biggest commitment that we've had since the turn of the century in college football that being arch manning i found it absolutely insane that Matthew McConaughey, Kevin Durant, all of these superstars that have been to the University of Texas were tweeting at Arch Manning. And by the way, Arch Manning just created a Twitter account in February, I believe. His first tweet committed to Texas. Pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And then he's got Kevin Durant following him. You know, Matthew McConaughey, all these guys, absolutely crazy. But can you think back, Luke, to a recruit that is this highly touted, especially with the name? I think more... More than everything, it's that last name that makes him so recognizable. But I can't think of anybody, maybe in the last 40 years, 20 years, 30 years, that has been more high profile going into their college football recruitment than Arch Manning. I can't think of anybody. Maybe, potentially, Tim Tebow. I was thinking about that a little bit, but he was a four-star coming out, if I'm not mistaken. Cam Newton was a big one. I know that. But Arch Manning, at least since the turn of the century, has been the biggest recruitment I've ever seen in my entire life. Every single day you went on Twitter before this commitment, there was news about Arch Manning. Oh, well, he liked a picture here. He liked a picture there. He was here for the weekend, there for the weekend. Oh, he's dating a girl who potentially is going to Texas next year. Like, every single day there was reports. Is this the biggest we've ever seen? I think so. I think that I can remember, certainly. And what you mentioned with the name, too, I also think plays a big role. Look, he's a great quarterback, but so, too, was Quinn Ewers and yeah. a bunch of other guys. The fact that he's supposed to be really good, he's a five, he's the number one quarterback, and then he's a Manning, uh, only adds to it. And then, yeah, to go to Texas. Now, look, he was either going to go to Texas, Georgia, Alabama. These are all big schools. But there's just something about Texas and the whole idea of Texas being back. They're a little more desperate. Alabama's used to getting big-time players. Georgia, as well, for Texas to go Quinn Ewers to now Arch Manning. There's a reason why Kevin Durant is very excited and McConaughey and all these Texas fans, and they're having dreams of getting back to where they were with Vince Young. So I think the combination of all those things, the school, the kid, the family, the skill set, leads to to this hype. And I think it probably is. I can remember, certainly in basketball, I I remember LeBron James coming out, going to the NBA. Even just Zion Williamson a couple years ago was big. 
But football, we don't get it as often. And, uh, yeah, this may be the biggest one that at least I can remember, certainly the last, whatever, 15, 20 years. Yeah, I mean, and also, I, I can't imagine a world. Quinn Ewers better play very well. That's all yeah. I got to say. Because if he stays after this coming season, Luke, and Arch Manning is on the team, if he has one interception, one incompletion, you know what the crowd's going to be chanting. They're going to be chanting for a Manning. They want the Manning sure. in there. And also, personally, I think that the booster club that basically runs the University of Texas Athletic Department wants Arch Manning to be on that field as soon as he steps on campus. So Quinn Ewers better have a picture-perfect Heisman-type season or else that job is lost as soon as Arch Manning gets to campus. There's no doubt about it in my mind. Like, those boosters are going to say, get get Manning, that last name, even if he's not great, get him on the field. We need him for TV. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, if both guys were equal, you'd rather have Manning than you. Nobody yeah. knows Quinn Ewers. Um so, yeah, I agree with you. Uh, if he plays really well this year for Quinn Ewers, things will be really interesting 12 months mm -hmm. from now. He could create a little bit of a rivalry and a battle. But, yeah, if he doesn't play well, he answers the question himself. He'll have nobody to blame but himself. He would be coming off a poor season, and you'd have Arch Manning coming in. Ewers, at that point, probably would transfer out. Right. So um, it'll be interesting to see how he does this year which will lead to potentially more drama, yeah, a year from now when Arch arrives. Luke, uh, I believe Wednesday or Thursday on the show, can't remember, uh, we were talking about uh, fashion and uh, yes. suits, actually, for uh, the upcoming wedding you'll be attending. Mm -hmm. Will you go with the high-water look? Who knows? Now, I got some critiques on the uh, suits I saw last night at the NBA draft. First of all, wasn't, you know, upset with any of them outside of one. I thought, by the way, Ty Ty Washington looked the freshest out of everybody. It was a nice, clean, you know, simple suit, beautiful chain on, had a nice watch. I think that's more of the outfit. Now, you got to get the chain, you got to get the watch on, make sure the suit, you know, goes with the chain and watch. But Paulo Bancaro, obviously, first overall pick, wore a purple suit. Now, that's a bold move. There's no doubt about it. Purple's an interesting color. It's got to work for you. The purple worked with Paulo Bancaro, but I didn't understand the uh, rhinestone diamonds or whatever they were that were just all over the suit. It looked like a wedding dress. It was interesting, but I just read a story that he wore a purple suit because so many people hated on him for not going to the University of Washington, oh. where his parents went and where he grew up up there in the uh, Northeast. So, or excuse me, the... Uh, Northwest, whatever it is. I don't know. The West Coast. Out there. All the way out there. Out there way too far. But that's why he wore the purple suit because apparently he got death threats and things of that nature for huh. not going to the University of Washington. Also, I learned about Paulo Bancaro. He was one of the best quarterbacks in like middle school and high school. He could have played both, apparently, if he wanted to at Duke, even though he's six foot ten, probably wouldn't worked out at the quarterback position. Yeah. But I saw some highlights from his younger years. The guy could play ball. There was no doubt. So with that all being said, this guy's got the most upside. He's the most athletic guy in the draft. He's six foot ten. He's got the body. The reason why I'd take him over Jabari Smith, it's the body. It's simple. I know Jabari Smith is a lot lankier than Paulo. I think you need to have some more muscle on where you're about to go against 30 to 35-year-olds who have been in the NBA for the last 15 years who will punk you. I know a lot of people say that the NBA doesn't play defense, especially in the regular season. They do, and they will punk you. There's no doubt. Six foot ten, that's difficult. I mean, he's going to be after guarding Giannis Antetokounmpo. So when he's guarding him, he's got to have weight on him because Giannis is an absolute freak. That's why I like Paulo over Chet and Jabari. But obviously, the steal of the draft has to be Jay Ivey going fifth uh, to, uh, to the um, Detroit Pistons. Him and Cade Cunningham together, look, I'm not saying the Pistons are going to be, you know, anything. Uh, they'll probably have a top five pick next year. But this is something to build on. I also like Jabari Smith 
teaming up with Jalen Green, two very lanky guys in Houston who can move. They're incredibly athletic. They both have, both have great outside shots. If John Wall will play at all, probably not. You know, that might be a good fit for Houston with those young guys. But I like the picks right now. I don't know how the Magic will do that. Again, all these teams will probably have a top 10 pick next year. I'm not looking, uh, you know, at major improvement, but this is phenomenal to put your base on with guys like Jalen Green pairing him up with Jabari Smith, Paulo obviously going to Orlando with some of their young guys. And I mean, I'm completely out on OKC. I'm out on Chet Holmgren completely, but Jay and Ivy going to Detroit with Kate Cunningham. I think it's a great mix. I was confused though about the Kings taking, uh, taking Keegan Murray. I didn't understand that pick because they have Sabonis. They have guys who can stretch the floor, kind of play that the four man who can go out to the perimeter and go inside low. They got a couple guys like that. That was the most confusing pick in my mind. I think, and one of my brothers is actually a Sacramento Kings fan. He was livid last night. He hates that yeah. pick. He wanted Jaden Ivey. We know that the players rule the NBA. We're getting to a point now where maybe they're also ruling the NBA before they even get into the league because Jaden Ivey made it clear, and I did not know this until yesterday. Everybody started saying this suddenly yesterday. But Ivy apparently made it clear he did not want to go to Sacramento. Mm. So for the Kings, you get to that pick. Look, you could still take him, and he'll be forced. He got drafted by the Kings, right? Tough luck. You don't want to play here too bad. Reportedly, Bancaro didn't want to go to Orlando. Well, now you are, so you know, deal with it. But I think part, I think that played into part of it. They, they wanted a guy who would actually want to be there instead of Ivy got exactly what he wanted. He wanted to be in the Midwest, stay closer to home. Uh, and he even said that when he got drafted. He said, like, this is a dream. I get to stay here, uh, you know, be close to home. So he got exactly what he wanted. I think that played a role. That if you're the Kings, you're looking at it and saying, like, well, he doesn't want to be here. Why are we going to – we, we need somebody that, you know, is going to come in and have a big impact. We don't want somebody who's unhappy. So they went with Keegan Murray, who uh, maybe is a better fit for them uh, on roster. I think they went for fit over talent, and hopefully it works out. Uh, last thing I'll say about the Kings is you go back, you look at their history – they, whenever they fail at a draft pick, the very next guy in the draft is a big hit. Yeah. They took Jimmer Fredette, the pick before Clay Thompson, for an example. <laughs> so this is another, this is a perfect situation here where, again, you could add this to the list where years from now we'll look back and say, wow, they took Keegan Murray before Jaden Ivey. So hopefully it works out for uh, the Kings, but they do it all the time where they take somebody and the very next pick is the big star. Hopefully that's not the case for them this year. Poor old Jimmer Fredette. Man, that was a great run. Great run, Jimmer. But the NBA yeah. punked you as soon as you came in the league. They uh, they gave you no room to waver, and you wavered a ton. So they, uh, they uh, kicked you out real quick. Now, Luke, I will say really quickly, Tampa's not going down without a fight tonight. I know they're down 3-1 in the series going back to Colorado. Hammer Tampa money line. I'll also say Tampa to win the series in 7 Plus 900 right now. I'd jump on that, no doubt about it. Tampa's not going down without a fight. Never doubt the heart of a champion. I hope so. I hope we, you know, drag out this series a little bit, make it a little more interesting. We'll see. Yeah, they've been tough to uh, knock off this postseason and obviously the last couple of years. So we'll see what we get tonight in the Stanley Cup Finals. Hopefully a good game. Uh, I just looked it up to um, finish off the thought, but the, the Kings took uh, uh, Bagley the third, the one pick before Luka Doncic in 2018. <laughs> they took um, uh, Thomas Robinson. One pick before Dame Lillard, and oh. then they took Jimmer Fredette one pick before Clay Thompson. And now last night, we'll see. All right, maybe they maybe took the wrong guy one pick before Ivy. All those guys are top 100 NBA players of yeah. all time. <laughs> Imagine if they actually took those three. The Kings would be incredible. Ugh. You get Clay Thompson and then Dame Lillard the next year, and then Luka Doncic a few years later. I mean, come on. You have your own big – you'd be the Golden State Warriors. But, yeah, my, my brother uh, is a lifelong Kings fan even though we grew up on the other side of the country. And uh, he's been a tortured Kings fan lately, and he was very upset last night. We'll see if it works out for Sacramento. When we come back, um, Shane Beamer 
and the Gamecocks coaching staff uh, making a little news yesterday. I'll explain why when we come back. It's the more Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Fan Lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show. Wrapping up hour two of the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. If you ever miss anything from the show, catch it on demand. Just search ESPN Radio Charleston, however you listen to your podcast. Uh, so there was this uh, story going around yesterday that there was a, a recruit who got um, uh, kicked out from the Gamecocks facility, showed up to watch 7-on-7 uh, seven seven of his high school program, got kicked out of the facilities, and he's a Clemson commit. And so this made a lot of a lot of uh, headway yesterday, but the recruit, you know, kind of led on the staff for South Carolina for months while they pursued him, you know, really relentlessly. And then when it looked like maybe he'd be coming to South Carolina, he committed to Clemson when they offered him. And so uh, you know he committed to Clemson after all the the hard work. And so he showed up to a seven uh, verse seven camp to watch his high school team play, and they kicked him out of the facility. And a lot of people are saying this was pettiness. For South Carolina. I like it, especially because it's the rival, right? If he spurns you to go to, I don't know, West Virginia, some other school, like, all right, yeah, sure, right? It's it maybe a little bitter, still hurts. You don't want to see that person that, you know, dumped you or rejected you show up at uh, your party. It may still be a little raw, but it's a little bit different when it's the rival. You have more of a reason to do it when a rival's showing up, right? Because of all schools to burn you on, not only did they ditch you, seemingly in the final hour, but to do uh, do so going to Clemson. I like this move from South Carolina. You didn't commit to us. You let us on. You chose Clemson. Now you're going to try to show up to the 7-on-7 seven seven tournament? Get out of our facilities. You're not welcome. I like the move from Beamer. And uh, the Gamecocks coaching staff yesterday. Maybe it's a little petty. Right, maybe you say they should be uh, the bigger men. I like the idea. I like the move. Hour 3 coming up next. We'll get back to the NBA draft and Arch Manning. It's the more Midday Show on ESPN Radio. WTMZ, 98.9 FM, WTMZ, 910 AM and 94.7 FM, W234CD, Dorchester Terrace, Brentwood, Charleston. This is the Morrow Midday Show. But wait, there's more. On ESPN Radio. Final hour of the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Get back to the NBA draft. Plus, a little uh, more Arch Manning talk. Best storylines of the upcoming college football season. And a whole lot more here over the final hour of the week. 
Hey, if you ever miss anything from the show, catch it on demand. Just search ESPN Radio Charleston, however you listen to your podcasts. And the podcasts are also available online at charlestonsportsradio.com. Just click on our show page. Or also through our free app, search ESPN Charleston in the App Store. And through the app, you can listen to the show live or on demand from anywhere in the world. You can always get in touch with the show, charlestonsportsradio.com. Click on our show page. Leave a comment for the show there. On Twitter, at Morrow Middays. And also, on the text line, 843-608-1734. Or you can give us a call to join the conversation on the phones. 843-721-9500. A last reminder before it's too late. Monday is the new week for our 2022 summer golf tour the latest rounds uh, latest round of foursomes will go on sale monday morning 8 a.m get yourself a foursome for just 98.9 and they'll go on sale at 8 a.m on monday for the rivertown country club it's week six out of ten for our summer golf tour coming up monday after the weekend 8 a.m so set your alarm put it in the calendar be ready to go monday morning 8 a.m and uh, get yourself a foursome for 98.9. Head over to charlestonsportsradio.com to get your foursome starting Monday at 8 a.m. Your last warning before it becomes too late come Monday. Uh, these foursomes sell out in the matter of minutes, so be ready to go right away at 8 on Monday, charlestonsportsradio.com, as our 2022 summer golf tour continues. The NBA draft, uh, of course, occurred last night. Takeaways from the NBA draft. You know, a lot of times uh, we come in after the college football season, I give you winners and I give you losers. It's a little bit harder with the NBA draft because, well, just like the NFL draft, you got to give it a little time. You got to wait and see. But let's get into a little winners, losers, and break down what happened last night in the NBA draft as well. And also, we'll discuss a little Paulo Boncaro. But a few winners and losers last night from the draft. Here's what I want you to look at. There are winners. There are losers. Well, I guess I'm a loser. A loser. And there are people who have not discovered how to win. Winners and losers from last night. We're going to combine this all kind of into one. I thought the top five picks all were kind of good fits. Like, I don't know if they're going to work out, right? But the Magic got, uh, I thought, the best player in the draft. Oklahoma City, I I have a lot of questions about Chet Holmgren, but if there's any team to take a swing on him, it should be Oklahoma with all of their draft picks. Jabari Smith fits well in Houston. I think Jaden Ivey fits really well in Detroit, and Keegan Murray could be a good fit in Sacramento, uh, even if maybe he's not as good as Ivey. But in terms of a couple specific winners or losers, you could say that the fifth pick, Jaden Ivey, was a big winner last night because he got exactly what he wanted. You could tell me the Pistons were a big winner because Ivey became available at number five. But I would say Ivy's the big winner. We touched on this last hour, but he made it clear he did not want to go to Sacramento. Everybody thought he'd be the number four pick. He wanted to stay closer to home in the Midwest, and he's doing so with Detroit. And he said afterwards that uh, you know it was a dream come true to be able to play in that region, that area. So he got exactly what he wanted. Now, we know in the NBA, right? we'll see how the Kyrie Irving situation plays out, but these guys typically get whatever they want, these stars. Now, a little bit of that happened here with Jaden Ivey before he even got into the league, coming out of college, entering the draft. Now, I don't know if that played a big role in Sacramento's decision 
But if you read between the lines, it seems like it had something to do with it. A lot of people were very surprised. This was one of the biggest, maybe the biggest surprise in the draft that Sacramento went with Keegan Murray over Jaden Ivey at number four. And maybe at least part of it was because Ivey made it clear before that I don't want to go all the way out there and play for Sacramento. That's why the Kings have always struggled to get free agents. People don't want to go out to Sacramento. There's nothing out there. And for Ivey, he wanted to be closer to home. So Jaden Ivey got exactly what he wanted. Drafted fifth, goes to Detroit. Good fit for him there. Stays close to home. Yeah, the Pistons were uh, seemingly on paper, seemed to be a winner because he was still available at five. I think Ivy's the bigger winner because he got exactly what he wanted, and he did it you know, as a recruit, as a prospect, coming out of college before even stepping into the NBA. I think another winner is college basketball in all of this. There's the options nowadays to go the college route still or to go try to play professionally. Go to the G League and try to get money uh, right away. Go play overseas. Well, last night, Jaden Hardy was the number two recruit in his uh, class a year ago. He decided to go that G League route to go get money this past year, play for, what do they call it, Ignite? Team Ignite, something like that, G League Ignite. So Jaden Hardy went that route. He was the number two recruit. Could have went to college, could have went to really whatever college he wanted to. Instead, went the G League route. You know where he was drafted last night? Not in the first round. He dropped all the way to the second round. Meanwhile, you look at Duke, they had four guys drafted. Uh, I think, what, three of the first 15 picks? Zion Williamson made the argument at the time he was as big of a deal by the draft as he was because he went to Duke. I think college basketball, even if it's just one year, we'll get back to that in a moment, I think college basketball is still the way to go. Now, there's different circumstances because of family issues. Maybe you need to go start making money right now. You can't wait a year. Right, your mother's sick, whatever the situation may be. Father got laid off, whatever it is, come from a tough background, you need money now, I get it. But for these guys that have options, that could afford to wait, especially now at name, image, likeness, you could get paid at the college game anyways. But for those that could wait a year before they truly turn pro, I still think college basketball is the best option. And Jaden Hardy is another example that these college basketball coaches can try to use. Number two recruit coming out of high school a year later, and he's getting drafted, yeah, he got drafted, but in the second round. Meanwhile, you look at Paolo Boncaro, went number one last night after playing at Duke. Chet Holmgren, all right, number two after playing at Gonzaga, so on and so far. Uh, Jabari Smith, one and done. And number three pick last night after playing in the SEC. I still think the better route is going to college basketball, even if it's for just a year. Another winner would be Jalen Brunson, but that turns the Knicks into a loser. Jalen Brunson looks like he's set for a big payday this offseason one way or another. The Knicks, I thought, were the biggest loser of last night's draft, or maybe more so Knicks fans. And I'm from a family of Knicks fans. The Knicks were acting like the Oklahoma City Thunder last night, pulling off all sorts of different trades to stockpile draft picks. Now, if you're Oklahoma City, you have to do that. They have more draft picks than teams in the NBA the next couple of years. That's why they could take a swing on a Chet Holmgren last night, because they had so many picks in last night's draft and future drafts. And they have to... Try to stockpile draft picks because you never get a star going to Oklahoma City. I've never been to Oklahoma City, but it seems like NBA players don't want to go there. And you saw Durant, Harden, Russell Westbrook all left. So they feel we got to get our stars through the draft. Well, the Knicks apparently did the same thing. The Knicks didn't make a single choice last night, single selection. They made like nine different trades just to get draft picks. And I think it has more to do with the reputation of the Knicks, we always talk about when guys become free agents, oh, they're going to want to go play in New York. And yet the Knicks never get a big-time free agent. They never have. 
Going back 30 years, they rarely do. At least 20-plus years. But it's us as the fans or media members, we perpetrate this misconception of, yeah, everybody wants to play in New York. Eh, They don't want to play for the Knicks. They like going there and playing at Madison Square Garden. Any basketball guy, any basketball junkie can acknowledge that it's the Mecca, MSG. But it doesn't mean they actually want to be part of the Knicks organization. They like playing there as a visitor. They don't want to be part of James Dolan's operation. But the way the Knicks operated, a lot like Oklahoma City, where they were trying to stockpile draft picks because they feel that's the best way to build. They're also trying to clear cap space, not for a Kyrie Irving, not for a Kevin Durant, but it seems like their big fish is Jalen Brunson. And if that's the best you can do, that's troubling for the Knicks as well. If you're trying to sell me, and again, my family, we're Knicks fans. I jumped on the Magic bandwagon, so I kind of have two NBA teams. I'm breaking the rules. But if you're trying to sell a Knicks fan on the fact that, hey, we're going to build through the draft and with Jalen Brunson, right? it's like the Yankees saying the same thing. It's like the Yankees uh, trying to be like the Tampa Bay Rays. What are you talking about? You're the New York Yankees. You go out and you sign an Aaron Judge. You give him his contract. You go out and you get that big star. Jalen Brunson's the best you can do, and you want us to try to wait through the draft? They're operating like the Oklahoma City Thunder. So Jalen Brunson's going to get a big payday, and the Knicks hope he's going to choose them. But if that's the best you could do, that's troubling. And I'll also say this. The other reason why the Knicks were the big losers is because not only uh, Jalen Brunson's their big prize, but how desperate they are. They hired his father to be a coach. We see this a lot in the college game, where they'll hire a family member to get the kid to come to school. In fact, you may remember when Keenan Allen was being recruited, and he wanted his, uh, it was like his stepbrother, half-brother, was a quarterback, and it was like a joint package. And Nick Saban said, yeah, no thanks. We don't need you, we don't need you that bad. We're not going to take your, your, your brother at quarterback. So Keenan Allen didn't go play for Saban. He wound up uh, in the Pac-12, if I remember correctly. But we see this a lot, where people will hire family members to get that kid. They did it back in the 80s with Danny Manning, hired his father on the coaching staff, and uh, he went to Kansas. But now the Knicks, an NBA team's doing this, where, granted, Rick Brunson played in the league, played for the Knicks. He did coach in the league, but he's been out of the league. He hasn't been coaching for the last four years. They just hired him this offseason, uh, coincidentally, when his son's about to become a free agent. These moves by the Knicks just seem so desperate to me. They're acting like they're the Oklahoma City Thunder, trying to stockpile draft picks, h- hiring Rick Brunson, just so his son will hopefully choose to come play. We're not talking about LeBron or Durant here. We're talking about Jalen Brunson, who most people didn't even know before this postseason. I think the Knicks were the biggest loser last night. We'll see who else. Right? The Magic choosing Boncaro over Jabari Smith. I like the move. I think it could turn them into a winner in this conversation. But a few years from now, maybe they'll say, yep, that was a losing choice. The Kings taking Keegan Murray over Jaden Ivey. I don't hate it as much as most people do. But again, a few years from now, we may look back and say, yep, the Kings were the big losers in that draft. Once again, right? they had a chance to get a star, and they didn't take him. But I think the college basketball game really um, benefited from last night. I thought the Knicks embarrassed themselves. And I thought um, also Jaden Ivey showed the power of the player even before they get into the NBA, where it seems like he kind of dictated where he went in the draft, let alone once they're in the league. And guys like Kyrie Irving choose where they go play for you know next, even when they're under contract. What's interesting about the draft is, you know, in the NBA draft, we, we don't know. We're talking about 19-year-olds. They're still got to uh, look at Chet Holmgren. He's a project. you got to give him a few years. In the NFL, people can come in. These players can come into the NFL and have an immediate impact in the NFL right away. A guy could help lead you to the Super Bowl in their first year like Jamar Chase. A quarterback can turn around your team in their very first week in the NFL. It's not really the case in the NBA. you got to be a little more patient. 
you know, we talk about trying to duplicate the Warriors, that it's now no longer about super teams. You should try to build through the draft and develop your players, which the Warriors did. The other thing the Warriors did, though, was not only that, but the guys that they drafted also spent a lot of time in college basketball. They weren't one and duns. Right? Clay Thompson spent three years in college. Steph Curry spent three. Draymond Green, four. Even Jordan Poole, their newer star, spent two years playing college basketball before the Warriors drafted him. I went back and I looked at the last 15 years, and I excluded last year because it's, it's too soon. But if you go back last 15 years, we have had 89 one-and-done players drafted in the lottery, which is the top 14. And of those 89 players, only 14 have become all-stars. That's essentially one a year. So you look at all these one-and-dones getting drafted in the first 15, uh, first 14 picks. History tells us only one of those guys will ever make an all-star team. Not a great rate. Because, for example, last night, of those first 14 picks, six of them were one-and-done. The top three picks last night were one-and-done players. History tells us, yeah, only one of those guys is actually going to be an all-star. Out of Boncaro and Holmgren, right, and uh, Jabari Smith, and then a few others that went later on, like Shaden Sharp, who's a big wild card at number seven. Only one of those guys, history tells us, suggests only one's actually going to make an all-star team. Not great. Just an all-star game. Once in their career, only one guy will do it. The numbers have gotten even worse in recent years, where fewer one-and-dones are making all-star games in the last five years compared to the previous decade. The number one pick last 13 years have all been one-and-done players. was the case again last night with Boncaro. But history kind of shows the hit rate on those guys are very low. They're 19-year-olds, one year removed from high school. They're not physically or mentally fully developed yet. They're coming into the NBA and going up against grown men. You put the whole team on their back. They're the number one pick in the draft. There's a lot of pressure. They're only 19. They don't know how to handle it yet. You expect them to be the star from day one. Then you look at the Golden State Warriors, right? Steph Curry, Klay Thompson, Draymond Green, Jordan Poole. They all spent a couple of years in college. John Morant's the best player in that draft. He wasn't one and done. Donovan Mitchell, Kawhi Leonard, James Harden, Paul George, Chris Paul, Damian Lillard, Russell Westbrook. They're all guys that played multiple years in college. I think there's a real benefit to that. There's a reason why in football they make you wait three years before you come to the NFL. Part of it, of course, is how physical the sport is. You can't take a 19-year-old and throw him out there and go against Ray Lewis. They'd get killed. But in basketball, the sport has become very physical in recent years. It's become very athletic. It's more athletic now than basketball has ever been. And you're taking these guys one year removed from high school. Not a ton of experience. They just went from playing 20 high school games to now, okay, maybe 32 college games to the next year, 82 NBA games. And it's a big leap. They've never done it. The two years ago, they were playing 25 games a year in high school. Now they're playing 82 in the NBA, you know, 18 months later. And, by the way, you're throwing millions of dollars at them and putting the team on their back and saying, go carry us to stardom. They're 19 years old. So last night, you look at the top five, the first three picks were all one and dones. And I really do like Paolo Boncaro. Uh, I don't have high hopes for Chet Holmgren. And I think Jabari Smith could be a good player in the NBA as well. But then you get to pick number four, Keegan Murray. Pick number five, Jaden Ivey. They spent multiple years in college. Keegan Murray is 22. He's just the second player to go in the top five in the last decade who is that old. Usually we don't get guys like this. He was also number one in the offensive rating in college basketball this past year. Jaden Ivey also was pretty impressive this past year. Spent multiple years in college. I like Boncaro, number one overall. But maybe we do look back, and maybe the Kings actually did nail this. Maybe they did get a pretty good player. And maybe we look back and see Keegan Murray and Jaden Ivey as two of the better players in this draft. 
guys who spend a little more time to get a little more polished in the college game before coming to the NBA, as opposed to a Boncaro and Holmgren and Jabari Smith. Hey, I uh, gave you a couple of winners and losers. Don't think that I did not notice another big winner in all this. Myself, us Italians, for the first time since 2006, an Italian player went number one in the NBA draft. So I have my Italia shirt on today. Feels good to be back on top, huh, Luke? Doesn't it? (laughs) That's right. Best player in all the land, Paolo Boncaro. Now, he's half Italian. His uh, father's Italian. And um, but he he he's uh, he classifies himself as Italian. He plays for he's part of the Italian national team. And in his uh, on his little Twitter profile, he's got the Italian flag next to his name. So I'm all in on Paolo Boncaro going to the I grew up rooting for the magic. And here he comes. First Italian drafted number one. The only other one I think ever was uh, Bargnani in 2006. And he was a bust. So Boncaro, you got a lot of pressure to try to uh, make up for Bargnani 16 years ago. There have not been a lot of great Italian NBA players over the years. No, I was just thinking uh, the first name that pops in my mind is uh, Gallinari. Uh, yeah. Is, yeah, he's, I'm sure, part Italian with that last name. Uh, you know, don't want to obviously uh, put any labels on anybody. Gallinari's one. I can't really think of any yeah. others, quite honestly. I know. Manu Ginobili is, is from Argentina, but he's like part Italian. Oh, okay, okay. And he lived and he played in Italy for a while as well. And I think like I think his parents were Italian and then moved to Argentina, I think is the story. Or one of his parents. So I think he's part Italian. He's like the only guy, though. He danced with the boot. His family danced yeah, with right. the boot a that's little right. bit. <laughs> so him and now Boncaro. I mean, before Boncaro even steps into the league, he's probably like the second best Italian player in NBA history. <laughs> so there you go. You know, part of the reason is Italians, and I'm Italian, so it's not like I'm putting down a certain population of people. They're not really typically tall people, so that doesn't fare well for the NBA or just for basketball in general. Or wear, wear the skinny clothes. Yeah, yeah, as you were explaining earlier this week. They're, uh, it's usually not a lot. You don't get a lot of height. So, you know, and, of course, soccer is so big over there. Um, that's why uh, my father is Italian, played professional basketball, and he was tall. He was a forward or center. But uh, when he would like, you know, when he goes over to Italy, it's like such like, whoa, look at this! It's like a novelty act. He's walking around the streets, so much bigger than right? Italians. They're not really big people. So, you know, Paolo, Paolo Boncaro's six ten, and Ginobili wasn't that big if he's part Italian. Bargnani was, Bargnani was like seven foot. Uh, but I think that's a big reason why he's just not producing a lot of height over there. I don't know where the height came from in my family, but everyone, everyone's big. My aunt's like six foot, right? and they got a lot of size. I don't know where it came from, but uh, that's the outlier. So, anyways, Boncaro. Congratulations, number one pick. I'm all I have. All, I'm all over the Boncaro bandwagon, and I hope he has a Hall of Fame career. Yeah, Jersey's coming in no less than two months, folks. No That's less right. than two months. Well, it's the perfect connection because like I said <laughs> I grew up rooting for the Magic, and so he's on the Magic. I know he comes from Duke. That's the one negative. But I saw him play in person this past year. He goes to the Magic, number one pick. Got that Italian background. Love Boncaro. That's my guy right now. So congratulations to him and the Magic. I think the Magic uh, taking him number one was the, the smart choice. Therefore, you could say he's a winner for being the number one pick, as he should have been. And the Magic maybe for making the right choice. We'll see years from now. But I think they made last night they made the right decision going, I think Boncaro's the safest pick, and I think he's the best player in this draft. And that's not just because he has an Italian background. Uh, I think he's that talented. But we'll see uh, how things progress now moving forward after the draft last night. Hey, when we come back, best storylines of the upcoming college football season.
I'll give you my top storylines next. Tomorrow Midday Show, right here on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show. With all my favorite clothes. Yes, all my favorite clothes. My sisters and my brothers see you black no more. All my favorite clothes. It's a good day to be. A good day for me. A good day to see my favorite colors. It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Coming up, the best storylines heading into the college football season. We'll get to that. Let's talk about the uh, NBA draft last segment. In regards to the Hornets and the Hawks, I do like their moves as well for the first round. I know they both address some needs. See, that's the thing with the NBA that it differs from the NFL. We can break down and analyze the NFL draft a whole lot more because there are so many positions and needs for teams. NBA, it's become positionless basketball. So it's not like, oh, but they needed a point guard, but they got a small four. That's not really the case anymore. Guys are playing all positions. Chad Holmgren is going to play down low defensively. He'll play out in the perimeter offensively. Like, he does a little bit of everything. Paulo Boncaro, right? he's 6'10", uh, but he's not going to be banging around inside a whole lot. So it's just it's positionless basketball. So it's, uh, you know, so instead there's a little drama in, because we don't know how these guys are going to turn out, and most of the decisions by these teams, it's not like, wow, they really screwed up. They didn't fill a need. Uh, these guys all kind of fill all needs for the most part. If they're, they're talented enough. But I do like the fit for the uh, top five picks, as I said. I know a lot of people are ripping the Kings. Uh, I kind of get it uh, with Keegan Murray. And Jaden Ivey's a good fit in Detroit. And then uh, with the Hornets, I like their decision. They need size. They need a center. They got an athletic one in Mark Williams, who's exactly the guy I wanted them to take. And, uh, and then the very next pick. His teammate, A.J. Griffin, went to the Hawks, and I think he has some good upside, and he's um, he can shoot it. And I think Trey Young should be surrounded with some shooters because of his penetrating abilities and the ability to then kick out to the open guy when the defense collapsed. So well, we'll see how things work out, but I like the thought process for the Hornets, the Hawks, and really all the teams in the top five. We were talking about Arch Manning earlier this afternoon. You could go find it on demand. Search ESPN Radio Charleston, however you listen to your podcast. He made the decision to go to Texas yesterday and we'll see how things play out and i don't want to look too far in the future but i voiced my concern earlier and it's why i if i was arch texas would have been third on my list because by the time they joined the sec in his third year at texas right that's gonna be a big year for his nfl future and i would be concerned about going into the sec with that big 12 roster at the time we played the clip from pete thamel earlier but he brought up a good point that last year i don't know arch manning will make a difference They'll continue to recruit some talent. But they lost by 20 points to Arkansas, which is not even the top team in the SEC. Like There's still a, a long way to go. They're going to get blown out this year by uh, Alabama. There's still a long way to go between Texas and the SEC. And so then Arch Manning's going to go rolling in there 2025. His third year at Texas will be draft eligible after that season. And we've seen teams, when they first joined the SEC, struggle. The only team that had immediate success was A&M because they had Johnny Manziel, who was running all over the place. And I don't think that's Arch Manning's game. Uh, my concern will be that Texas will be at a real disadvantage, especially in the trenches, joining the SEC. And uh, by the time we're talking Arch Manning to the NFL, right, that could be bad timing for him and his draft stock. Sure, that's three years down the road. A lot can change until then. But that's my concern. 
with the idea of going to Texas and then being there when they join the SEC in a crucial year for Archer's future. When it comes to college football, what are some of the biggest storylines for the upcoming season? We're about, I don't know, 70 days away from the opener. They'll be here before you know it. Top five biggest storylines for college football this year. Number five, I go Spencer Rattler. And I think it's fascinating. We all like a uh, a bounce-back story. Spencer Rattler at Oklahoma was the number one quarterback at one time. We thought he'd be the number one pick. We thought he'd be the Heisman winner. He gets benched midseason. Then he has to leave the program. Now he's at South Carolina. And if you want to compare Oklahoma and South Carolina, right, that's a pretty big drop-off. But he's with an old coach. And the Gamecocks, you know, are, are hopeful of what they can accomplish this year. And Spencer Rattler obviously wants to turn himself back into an NFL quarterback. So I put, especially around these parts, we'll be paying close attention. Spencer Rattler at number five for the best storylines for this upcoming football season. Number four, I would say Jimbo versus Nick Saban. I think when Alabama and Texas A&M play in October, that's probably going to be the most intriguing game of the year. We'll have our standard rivals, of course, rivalries, you know, towards the end of the season. But Texas A&M, Alabama will be a lot of fun. I think Alabama may win easily, but just the, the potential fireworks. I'll also make this prediction here in June that I actually don't think we'll get a whole lot out of that game. I think they'll both take the high road, but you know you're going to be interested and you're going to want to tune in to see Jimbo and Saban and what's going to happen when they're on the field together. Not only that, but just the idea of competing within the SEC. Texas A&M won last year. They had the number one recruiting class. We know all the storylines. Can they finally get to the playoff for the first time this year? Can they knock off Alabama? Or can they go to the playoff with an Alabama somehow? We'll see what Texas A&M accomplishes this year. Number three of the biggest or best storylines for college football this upcoming fall, I'm going to put Clemson at number three. This, to me, is a big swing year. Right, you have one down year last year and a down year for them. I know they still won, what, 10 games? But they did not compete in the ACC title game, and they played in the Cheez-It Bowl. That was not meeting preseason expectations for Clemson. That was or should have been a letdown if you're a Clemson fan. If they have a similar season this year, same idea. I'll look at it as a letdown again. And you have back-to-back seasons like that, a little bit of a concern. right? If they're not in the ACC title game again this year, uh, I start to worry a little bit. I can understand one down year. All right, maybe it's an outlier. Maybe DJ just wasn't ready. I'll give you a chance to bounce back. Two down years back-to-back. All right, now we're building a little bit of a trend. I saw some people make their picks for the ACC title game, and only one out of four football analysts chose Clemson to even be in the ACC championship. A lot of people are down on Clemson. You lost, you know, your two important coordinators. DJ did not look good last year. Uh, the ACC is becoming a little more interesting away from Clemson with the likes of NC State and Miami, and we'll see what Pittsburgh and Wake Forest does as a follow-up this year. But Clemson's number three because we assume Georgia, Alabama, Ohio State, they'll be fine. What are we going to get out of Clemson this year? Will they get back to the playoff? Will they be in that conversation? Or are they going to be third place, you know, third best seat, not competing for the ACC title game? We'll see. Number two of the best storylines for this college football season is Bryce Young against C.J. Stroud. Now, I do hesitate because every year we think we know the best quarterbacks in college football, and it turns out it doesn't really work out that way. But going into this year, on paper, it looks like we have quite the showdown between Bryce Young and C.J. Stroud for both the Heisman, for you know number one quarterback in the draft, for the national championship. These are the two best quarterbacks heading into the season in the country. It should be a lot of fun to watch these two teams on these two big-time programs with the high expectations compete Saturday after Saturday after Saturday, putting up big numbers. And maybe we'll even get these two battling in the national championship or the playoff. 
watching to see who's better, Bryce Young or C.J. Stroud this year, could be a lot of fun this fall. This is probably too high of praise, but I think back, we were talking about Texas earlier, you know, big-time recruits. I think back to Vince Young and Matt Leinart that year, and then they met in the Rose Bowl, and that's one of the most incredible football games I've ever seen. And Vince Young was phenomenal, and because of that game, he got drafted as high as he did. I would love something like that, where all year you're looking at these two teams, Matt Leinart, USC, Vince Young, Texas. They were the two best teams in football, and they finally met on the biggest stage with the two best quarterbacks, and it was uh, it lived up to the hype. I would love to see like a dueling piano bar. You're watching Bryce Young and C.J. Stroud just light up their conferences every Saturday. They're the two best quarterbacks in the country. They'll be the top two quarterbacks drafted, and then we get them in the national championship. That'd be a lot of fun. That's my wish this year as a neutral college football fan. And then number one, though, the biggest story, I think, to track in college football this year, I kind of cheated here and put a bunch within one, but it's programs trying to get back. With the Arch Manning recruiting, right, we're hearing, oh, is this it? Is Texas back? Well, in the meantime, they do have Quinn Ewers and year two of Steve Sarkeesian. You have USC with Lincoln Riley and Caleb Williams and the number one wide receiver. Are they going to be back? Are they going to win their conference? What about Mario Cristobal in Miami? Are they going to win the Coastal in the ACC? And if you even want to throw in LSU, they had a bad year. Here comes Brian Kelly. Can they compete right away first year of Brian Kelly in the SEC? I think that's the biggest story. What are we actually going to get? Look, USC is the favorite to win the Pac-12. Are they going to do it? Texas had the second-best odds to win the Big 12. Are they actually going to compete this year? Miami has, I think it's the third-best odds to win the ACC. So there's high hopes for these teams. These are big brands, big fan bases, teams with history that have not been that great of late, but they brought in either a big coach or a big quarterback this offseason. The hype surrounding them is real. right? People are excited about USC, Texas, Miami. We're talking about you know maybe New Year's Six teams. Maybe USC's a playoff team. What are we actually going to get out of them? Are these the coaches and or quarterbacks that could lead them back to that promised land? That's the number one story for me. Five biggest, best storylines of the college football season, the five things I'm looking forward to, Spencer Rattler, five, Jimbo and Nick Saban all season long, but especially that game in October. Number four, Clemson, number three, what are we going to get? Number two, Bryce Young and C.J. Stroud battling all year for quarterback supremacy. And number one, those one-time top-end programs that are trying to get back there and that have legitimate excitement and hype around them for the first time in a while. USC, Texas, Miami, and if you want, right, you can even include LSU if you wish with Brian Kelly. And then an honorable mention. I'll even give you an honorable mention because I was uh, debating if this should crack the top five and bump somebody else out. I'm going to say Harbaugh and Michigan. What's the follow-up going to be this year for Harbaugh and Michigan? Harbaugh is somebody that football fans love to hate. You love to have a reason to root against Harbaugh. I actually like Harbaugh. I've defended Harbaugh. I wanted my Vikings to hire Harbaugh this offseason. But I also have been comparing Michigan all offseason to last year's Florida. They had their best year under Harbaugh. They beat Ohio State finally. They win the Big Ten. They go to the playoff. That's great. But it's harder to stay on top, right? They got to the top, at least their top. I don't know if Michigan could ever actually win a national championship. I don't think they could compete with Georgia or Alabama. We saw that in that playoff game. I mean, that was best case. If we were being realistic, that was best-case scenario for Michigan last year. There wasn't much more you could accomplish. That was the best you could do. All right, well, that's great. Harbaugh got a lot of people off his back. right? He got some money back. All right, well, now what are you going to do this year? Was it a one and done? Was it a little flukish? Because you know if Michigan struggles again this year and beyond, eh, Michigan fans, Harbaugh detractors, they'll write off last year. Uh, It was a one-off. It was an outlier. It was a fluke. So how's Michigan going to follow it up? I think they take a step back. 
I compare them to uh, Florida from a year ago. I don't think they'll be as bad as Florida, but I see a lot of similar trends. You lost your best players to the draft. In this case, Michigan, they lost both coordinators. Harbaugh thought he was going to the NFL as well. Looked like he didn't want to be there anymore. You, you, you reach the, the pinnacle. It's hard to then come back and try to top that. So Michigan would be an honorable mention. Don't cry, uh, quite crack my uh, top five, but I'll put them at number. I'd put them at number six. How's Michigan going to be this year? Top things to look for in college football this season. Coming up, we'll introduce a uh, new segment of the show that we'll do at the end of each week. And we'll do it next as we get ready to uh, wrap up your Friday, heading towards the weekend. It's the Morrow Midday Show, right here on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show. It's the Morrow Midday Show at Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. We'll introduce a new topic in just a moment here, or a new uh, segment on the Morrow Midday Show in just a moment here on your Friday. If you ever miss anything from the show, catch you on demand. Search ESPN Radio Charleston, however you listen to your podcast. Earlier, I gave you my power rankings in Major League Baseball, and I have to give credit where credit is due. You know, I, I was a little tough on the Braves. I heard from Braves fans when they won 14 in a row, and I wrote a lot of it off to the fact that they were playing bad teams. So I have to give props. They're not out of the woods yet. You get the Dodgers this weekend. Let's see how it goes. But they did take three out of four against the Giants, and they found ways to win a couple of those games. And the Braves, I gave you the power rankings earlier. I left them just outside of the top five, but they're playing uh, as good of baseball as anybody in the month of June. They're tied with the Yankees for the best record this month. So they're playing really good baseball. This was a good series this week against the Giants. They win the series. And now they are 500 this year against teams with a winning record. So, you know, solid. And also uh, in one-run games, they're now 11-8 and eight after getting, what, three one-run wins against the uh, Giants this week. So a good start for the Braves to this stretch. Now you get the Dodgers this weekend, and then you get the Phillies after that, which even that could be an interesting test. Those divisional games are always important. And... Um, the Braves this year have not been great. They've been okay against their own division, 13-10. and 10. So this is uh, an interesting stretch, but a good start to the week for the Braves. We'll see how things go with the Dodgers in time. That should be uh, Dodgers in town. That should be fun. And if uh, Freeman is booed tonight, we'll see how he's received. He'll get his World Series ring. Meanwhile, the Giants. The Giants will have to now bounce back after, unfortunately, losing three out of four against the Braves. Yeah, I mean, we got the Reds uh, this weekend in a series, but once again, bug on the windshield type game for the Giants. These boys are ready to go. We'll be locked in. No, Don't worry about a thing, Luke, with the San Francisco Giants. They'll be just fine. If Jock Peterson's hitting the ball, Estrada's hitting the ball the way we need to, and our pitching staff doesn't let us down, which I already have gripes against multiple pitchers on our pitching staff now. So once that all ends, I think the Giants will be okay. They should be fine. Yeah, this is, you know, if you're coming off a couple of tough games, the Reds are one of those teams you want to see. So uh, they should be able to bounce back this weekend. If you missed it earlier this week, Trent has become now the biggest Giants fan. 
you'll ever meet. He's jumped on the Giants bandwagon this year, and I'm all for it. Certainly better than the Yankees. I gave you my rankings earlier. The Yankees are clearly the best team in baseball. And then from there, I think there's a big gap, but I think the Mets would be the second best. The Dodgers, I have concerns about that bullpen, and they're a little beat up right now. Dodgers three, Astros four, Padres five, and then the Braves probably right outside of that group. See how they do against the Dodgers, see what sort of reaction uh, Freddie Freeman gets tonight as he gets his ring, and it should be a fun series. If you're a baseball guy, this is a good weekend of baseball. we got some good series this weekend. You just wouldn't know it because Major League Baseball, they, they're like a silent film. They don't say a word about anything going on in their sport. So we're going to do this uh, at the end of Fridays each week. It's, a, it's not all that unique. It's something all sorts of radio shows do. They'll call it the bum of the week. I know of another radio show does uh, champ and a chump, and the idea is... Well, it's pretty self-explanatory. Bum of the week. You look back at the end of the week and see who's the biggest bum of the week. Who is the guy that uh, had the biggest blunder this week? Did the worst thing, made themselves look the worst, maybe had the worst performance, whatever way you want to take it. We're going to do it each and every Friday, look back on the week that was, and wrap it up with uh, essentially the bum of the week, but we can't steal the name of another show's segment. So instead, we just take the segment, we change the name, it's our own thing, it's unique, it's like nobody's ever heard of it before. Time to do an album. Time now for this week's Persona Non Grata. That's right. We don't do Bum of the Week around here. We do Persona Non Grata. And after Paolo Boncaro goes first overall in the draft, we play a little music from The Godfather as well to celebrate on this Friday. Persona Non Grata. Who is that this week in the sports world? There's plenty of guys you could choose from. We started the week on Monday talking about Kenny Atkinson, removing his name as head coach of the Hornets and pulling a 180 on Michael Jordan, the greatest of all time over the weekend. You could say Kyrie Irving for what he's doing with Brooklyn. I would also suggest Kyrie Irving just because I hate. One of the things I hate about my own industry is how consumed and wrapped up we get with these storylines and these stars. And all you're going to hear about over the next week is Kyrie Irving. And as somebody who even works in the industry, I'm tired of it. I don't care to hear about it. Let me know when there's a resolution. Maybe you feel the same way about the whole Deshaun Watson saga. I'd also put Deshaun on this list. He could be on this list every week until we get things figured out. We talked a lot this week about the uh, Live Golfers or just the Live Golf Series. If you're a golf fan, maybe you feel like those guys. Maybe you feel like they turn their back on their family. Like a Brooks Kepka specifically, who uh, fed a bunch of nonsense two years ago and then did the opposite or even last week was a little short with a reporter and then a few days later left for the Live Golf Tour. We talked about that earlier this week. And then when it comes to the NBA draft last night, you could also choose maybe the Kings, especially if you're a Kings fan for their choice, or if you're a Knicks fan, I think you have a lot of reasons to be upset with the Knicks. I thought they had a lousy night last night. I thought they kind of, they're kind of embarrassing themselves right now. All great options to choose for this week. But I go with Kenny Atkinson as uh, persona non grata of the week. Originally, he was going to be head coach of the Hornets and then changed his mind over the weekend. And here we are where we just had a draft last night. The Hornets drafted a player. They still don't have a head coach yet. Not great. And I don't like this idea of changing your mind. I hated when Josh McDaniels did it. Now, that was further down the road with the Colts. He was already hiring a staff. But I would ask Kenny Atkinson, what changed? 
You were already with the Warriors. You agreed to be the head coach of the Hornets. Was it simply just winning that championship? Like, what else changed? You you knew what you could accomplish in Golden State. You were already assistant. You knew. It wasn't like I don't think the money changed over the sake of the uh, over the time of the conversation. I don't like changing your mind or opinion like that and leaving the Hornets at the altar. And you don't do that to the greatest guy, the greatest athlete, greatest basketball player of all time, Michael Jordan. But maybe now I'll tick him off enough that he'll actually start doing a good job running that organization. I did like their pick last night. So it's perfect for the idea of the segment because just like um, Al Pacino says in the lead-up of that, uh, we call it imaging in the industry, that production piece. Right? Don't ever turn your back against the family. Kenny Atkinson, he kind of turned his back against the Hornets and what was supposed to be his new family, and specifically Michael Jordan. You don't do that to MJ. So Kenny Atkinson is uh, this week's persona non grata. We'll do it every Friday. Look back at uh, the biggest bums of the week, and I'll let you know who's the most disappointing. It's like uh, Festivus when uh, um, uh, Jerry, uh, when uh, I'm mixing up uh, Jerry Stiller and Frank Costanza, when Frank Costanza gets in front of the table at Festivus, and he says, you gather all the people you love, and you tell them how they disappointed you over the past year. That's what we'll do on Fridays. Talk about uh, all the people in the sports world that have disappointed us over the past week. This week, Kenny Atkinson, for originally deciding to become the head coach of the Hornets, and then a few days, weeks, however long it was later, in the uh, 11th and a half hour, saying, yeah, actually, I'm going to stay in Golden State. By the way, what are we doing here, Hornets? You just had the draft. Can we hire somebody? I figure you just go to your next. All right, let's give D'Antoni a call, see if he wants a job. Uh, what's going on here? How are we still dragging this on? you got to get a head coach in there. We're about to start the season already. We'll wrap up your Friday when we come back. More Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Spin lunch with Luke. Yo, what up? What's the word, big fella? Everything's good on this end. Hey, Luke, how's it going? Thanks for having me on the show. Hey, Luke. Hey, man. Pleasure to be on your show. I'm doing great, but I'm hoping you could call me Boca Baby. Great show. You did a good job. You're turning into rapidly my favorite person I've interviewed with, and I've done like 50 of these in the last week. You've done your homework. I like it. I absolutely like it. I love that. Another great thought. You've done your homework, haven't you? Good job. You've always getting big stars and important people on. That's, that's great to hear. We like to hear the interviews. You know, it's uncanny how you do this, Luke. And I don't know how you do because I, you know, I do this gauntlet of radio on Thursdays, where I do all these different cities. Many of them need their hosts to have me give them some talking points. You hit all my talking points every <laughs> week. It's it's uncanny how good you are. Always great talking football with you, Luke. Appreciate you guys being right. Very impressive. Just want to say, I find you the low country Colin Coward. You use common sense with statistics, and you combine them, and you think outside the box. Shout out to all the people itself that support the show. Tell your friends. Tell your friends. Da 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 <laughs> da 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 da. Go ahead, boy. That's how you bring it on. Is this a sports show or a dancing show? I, I don't know. Sometimes I don't know what we're doing around here. Well, it's loop for three hours. Anything goes. On the Morrow Midday Show. Wrapping up your Friday in the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. 
you ever miss anything from the show, catch you on demand. Search ESPN Radio Charleston, however you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget, you can take the Morrow Midday Show with you wherever you go. Stream us online at charlestonsportsradio.com or through TuneIn Radio, your smart speaker, or our free app. Search ESPN Charleston in the App Store. And through the free app, you can listen to the show live or on demand from anywhere in the world. The show is available. The podcasts are available through the app as well. ESPN Charleston in the App Store. Appreciate listeners checking in from at least nine different states and multiple countries today, including Washington, as we described last hour as just eh, being out there, wherever they are listening in Washington. Far away. Yeah. So uh, appreciate you uh, still sticking with the show. Beautiful state. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful state. We love you in Washington, <laughs> let me tell you. And we're big time. They love us in Washington as well. So the feeling's mutual. Uh, catch uh, the show on demand if you miss anything. And instead of being bogged down with Kyrie Irving for three hours, we got to all sorts of different stuff throughout the afternoon. Braves-Dodgers coming up tonight. Should be a fun series this weekend. We just saw Jock Peterson get his World Series ring. Now we'll get to see Freddie tonight. I am curious to see the reaction. I do think he gets some boos, and, you know, I wouldn't hate it. I wouldn't uh, be upset. I wouldn't uh, squeeze my rosary beads and yell at you Braves fans. I think it could be a fair response. So we'll see what happens tonight when Freeman returns and what happens this weekend with the Braves-Dodgers. If you're into baseball, this is a good weekend of baseball. I mean, there's not a whole lot going on. Watch Severance on Apple TV if you want. And watch a little baseball because there's some fun series here in June going on the next couple of days. I'll be their PR team and said, I'll, I'll give you a sales pitch on baseball since they won't. Catch the show on demand if you miss anything. And stay tuned for Fan Talk with Trent coming up here in a few moments. Live is a series of hellos and goodbyes. For now, we say goodbye. We'll say hello again on Monday at noon. Enjoy the weekend. It's the more Midday Show on ESPN Radio.